Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, my father? That's what I used to miss about Simon. That's what I miss about him now, actually. You know, that he doesn't doesn't do the my father bit at the end of the, the what's up. That's what he started off doing. I think it was something it was, that his kids... It was a did. kind of a classic wittertainment catchphrase. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's, and now it's just it's, it's just it's all up here. Yeah, and it's in here. This is terrible, <laughs> terrible podcasting. I'm tapping my head and tapping my heart. That's fine. And really this is bad. not live streamed you know, either, so yeah, they've no. got no idea. What, okay. You know, I think okay. what's really strange and and perhaps a little uh, humorous about this uh, podcasty section of the show is that we're still both wearing the Eddie the Eagle glasses, despite the fact that the cameras are now off. Nobody can see what we're doing but we're both wearing them i've got so used to yours wearing them i can't i can barely imagine your face without it seeing as i only met you uh two hours ago exactly and i mean nor nor can i really uh, i mean i think they're great this, this is my new look mm. so for those uh who are just have uh, just downloaded or they subscribe to the podcast um i'm sure you'll know that uh, mark and uh, simon are off on their uh, easter easter bound cruise uh and uh, i'm here in in simon's place robbie and mark's robbie you'll know well me uh, I'm Ben. Um, there's no reason for you to know me, really. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just a guy. Um, but I'm also a, a huge, huge fan of the show, you know. So I'm just, I'm really, really hyped to be on it. I don't know if I'm going to listen to it as such. I don't know if I need to hear my voice for an hour and a half. Come on, it's a thrill. When you download do you, that do you listen to yourself? podcast that you're on, my goodness. Oh, yeah? Is that what Because yeah, this is an interesting thing. Me and Robbie are, were both fans before we were asked to be involved in the show, you know. So you, on your very first show, you went home and, and listened to it. Of course, straight away. Of okay. course. All right. Well, maybe I'll do the same. I don't feel as I don't feel I don't feel narcissistic about it now. I feel I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I, I want to actually before we launch into the show properly, mm. I just want to say hello to Simon Ellis, who is a second bassoonist uh, from Edinburgh. He was in the Edinburgh Secondary Schools Orchestra between 1985 and 1988. And when it came to light last time I was on that I was a second bassoonist, I was kind of made, <laughs> lampooned, made a fool of, belittled. You know, words words all respectable that instrument. I and mean. what I like is that you know another second bassoonist has come out of the woodwork. So if you are a second bassoonist, mm. please get in touch. First bassoonists. You know, take or leave them. Exactly, really. exactly. But second, what, what does the know. second? What's the second bassoonist bring into the table that the first is? Well, the first bassoonist. I mean, the first bassoonist basically is working for the man. You know, they're doing, <laughs> they're 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 kind of doing what you expect the bassoon to do. But the second bassoonist, you know, he's the maverick of the. Piece. He's the one that comes to you not from the front but from the side. It's the wow. other bassoon that you didn't even know was there, in that kind of slightly, <laughs> you know, awful Jurassic Park reference that kind of went nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, true. I know, I'd agree with that. I, I can hear, I can hear the terseness in, in your voice. Do you, do you still have a bassoon? You still? I don't still play it. No, the bassoon, but you have the bassoon is you still own... around. Yeah, the, the bassoon still exists. I mean, the thing is, once you've mastered the theme tune from Ivor the Engine, mm. where else? You know, there are no more worlds to conquer. You've got to remind me of how that went. I, I merely remember the cartoon. It starts. It, it starts in this kind of double octave arpeggio like bum that's what bassoon sounds like so really and it goes on i you know i pictured it as a slightly less exciting instrument actually and i'm i'm impressed by it as i in my mind for some reason it was kind of like it it brought to the orchestra like what the tuba brings you know just sort of boom 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 no 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 but it's way more you've 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 bought it jumps around no i have that's what i'm saying i'm feeling educated i'm feeling educated here 
um, speaking to an actual genuine second bassoon. Well, no, I mean, I remember one day in school, I kind of got in, in, in music class and someone said, is it a didgeridoo? <laughs> and that was just, you know, it's hard to live that down. That's why it's a slightly sensitive uh, subject. Yeah, no, f- fair enough, fair enough. And and yeah, tr- it's true, you were you were somewhat belittled by by Mark. But we'll get our own back on, on the other end of, of, of the show, I, I feel. Yes. Le- leave that with me. Leave that with me and I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, now, there was some talk um, a couple of weeks ago about dogs in films. Yes. Um, and uh, Simon and Mark were trying to find out if there were any films out there that didn't have a dog's name in the title, weren't animated, but a dog was crucial to the plot. And uh, naturally, Wittertainees around the globe are just, they're so ready for this. I mean, the, the, we're talking about people who invented an app within minutes of it being suggested on air. So these guys are no slouches. And uh, uh, sh- sure enough, um, James Andrew from Ayrshire. And so there's a lot of Ayrshire reference on this show, isn't there? What with Graham, our, yeah. our, our producer Robin. Um, I, I was surprised, uh, nay disappointed, says uh, Sharon Andrew that the good doctor failed to mention the 2013 German film The Wall as the best example, she says, of a film where a dog is essential to the plot. This film about a woman who encounters an invisible wall in the countryside has the most touching and powerful section where she finally comes to terms with her situation in no small part to the companionship of her dog. An oversight due to his impending week off from the show, no doubt. <laughs> His mind was already on the beach, wasn't it? There you go. Let's be honest. There you go. I've just realised, I, I, I said that was from James Andrew, but then at the top of the email it says Sharon Andrew, so I don't know if it's from Sharon or James. I'm thinking it's from James, maybe on behalf of Sharon. Who knows? James, maybe you can clear that up for us. Um, this is a, a simple one from Mark Dunn. He just says, I'm just catching up with the dog hold dogs in movies thing, and the rover has got a dog that's central to the plot. The ro- I've not seen the rover. The rover? The rover or rover? He says the rover. Yes, that's very the true. Rover. It's the um, it's it's the the film with Robert Pattinson um that was set out in this kind of slightly Mad Maxy dystopian outback Australia. Oh, yeah. Guy Pearce was in it as well. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah, the title now that now that he mentions it, the title is this kind of amusing, th- kind of three way pun. And to ex- to explain it anymore would give away some of the stuff okay. that happens later in the All film. Right, but we'll no, that's right. It's it's absolutely central to to the plot. Fair enough. And Andy in Turling in, in Essex says an entry for the. Snappily titled challenge: Name a non-animated movie that contains a dog as a legi- <laughs> name a non-animated movie that contains a dog as a legitimate character. Um, he says, "Homeward Bound." Um, handily, it can be also it can also be entered into the name a non-animated movie that contains a cat as a legitimate character. Back of the net, says Andy. Thanks for that, Andy. Yeah, Homeward Bound. Homeward Bound. I, I want to do. A- it's actually not a, that bad a film. I watched it relatively recently on on Netflix, thinking it was going to be just such a cheese fest but it wasn't that no bad. you know really these, enjoyed some it. of these animal adventure movies are okay I want to actually shout out to um, Umberto D which is a film by an Italian director called Vittorio De Sica um, about this um, it, it, it's kind of uh, neorealist Italian cinema so post-war mm-hmm. Italy is in a total mess and right. people are really struggling to survive and the, the main character this, this old guy called Umberto D a pensioner who doesn't really have any proper income and is reduced to begging and he has this incredibly touching relationship with a dog called Flyke mm. 
And it's not the love that he gets from the dog that keeps him going, but it's the love that he is able to give to the dog. And it's this idea that ultimately one of the most important things you can do as a human is love something else, even if it's not another human being, you know, if you've got a pet. And there is a moment in towards the end of the film where he wrestles with the fact that he may actually have to give this dog up because he just can't sustain both of their lives. Mm. That is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in all cinema. If you're, I mean, even if you're not a dog lover, you have to see Umberto Remind D. Remind us, what's, you, that, what's it called? It's, it's called Umberto D and it's by an Italian filmmaker called Vittorio De Sica. Wow. Okay, I'm going to check that out. I think I would add to the pile um, my favourite comedy movie of all time, The Jerk, uh, Steve Martin vehicle from from 1979, which, uh, you know, I can watch every day for the rest of my life. I really could. Um, but there's a crucial dog performance in that film. I mean, crucial almost throughout the movie. He's, he's involved in some key plot points. Um, what's, what's the dog's name in that film, Ben? I can't remember. Uh, well, let, let's just say for fans of the movie... Uh, he's crucially not called lifesaver, um, but he is crucial to the plot and and provides a, a lot of classic classic moments as well. P- possibly my favourite being uh, when he jumps into the bathtub, thinking that Steve Martin is uh, professing his love to the dog rather than to his own wife uh, or fiance at that point. Um, yeah, so I, I, I would say the the, the jerk, um, John. Uh, John Tanter has uh, said his vote um, would be for Margin Call. Does that ring any bells? Yes, bell? yes, right enough, yes. Um, yeah. The film about the financial um, downturn stroke crash. Now, when did that come out? It was um, JC Chandor's film. Sure. It's like 2000, it was quite a while ago. It was like 2011, I think. And um, it was a kind of an ensemble drama set in an investment bank on Wall Street on the night at which they realise it's, it's unsavable. And I think... I think it's Kevin Spacey's character that I can't I can't remember clearly well, what his relationship. John says um, Margin Call isn't a film about the failure of value at risk, uh, a failure of value at risk models under extreme stress situations in the financial markets. It's a film about Kevin Spacey's dog. So. Is, is Kevin Spacey's character? It's about a dog, but it's not about a dog. It's, it's that kind of a, it's thing. It's one of those. At, at the end, okay. the I mean, again, it's something where the dog is kind of plays a crucial role in how the film is resolved. And it'd be a shame to give it away. But no, that's that's I've very, that's very well that. astutely observed. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John. And uh, you know, I'm sure I'm sure this dog thing will will run and run. It's the nature of this show, isn't it? You, you know, Mark will say one off, offhand thing, and it just goes. Simon will say one offhand thing, and it it just lives forever. You know, I, did, I remember the show where Colonial Commoner was first uh, mentioned and I I never thought it would, you know, carry on beyond that show and it's still going to this day. I mean, you know? against all expectations. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's amazing to me that, that at this stage now that things like Benjamin Sniddlegrass have sort of disappeared into the into the ether. You don't hear much about Sniddlegrass these days because there's just so many it other must, little it, things that have popped up out of the show. time for a reboot soon, surely. Yeah, that's true. There's, there must be money. That's there. true because I took my younger one to see spider-man and i remember being amazed when she said she wanted to see it that there was a new spider-man but then speaking to older kids they were like dude that was the old spider-man was like 10 years ago you know yeah. i thought okay yeah so it's reboot so time. time so time for it's probably time to sort of reimagine sniddlegrass and just just think about how we could do for that a with kind the of te- a new technology contemporary world yeah i, I want to see inside sniddlegrass you know i i, I want to know about the the real benjamin you know let's see some dreams within we dreams pass, we'll write a memo we'll leave this for mark and simon yeah. they, they will well, they've got I'm, the context i'm they? certain they will pick this up <laughs> most definitely um We've got so much more correspondence on on Batman versus Superman, but do we really want to hear it? Maybe we should. Say- we did a lot during the show. We did I a lot, didn't we? Yeah. I think we're good. Okay. Well, in that case, um, from Sniddlegrass, 
and 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 uh, wittertainment history to the modern day. Let's get on with the show. Uh, this week you have the uh, brilliant Robbie Collin. Hello oh, there. But Ben Bailey Smith, how are you, Robbie? <laughs> Very uh, well, thank you. It's lovely to meet you. Yeah, and you. I, I've I've been a big fan for uh, for a long, long time. I've read a lot of your reviews. I've always looked forward to hearing you in the uh, in the hot seat. Um, that's that's the nature of me, though. I'm 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 kind of a super fan. I feel like I've I've won some kind of competition uh, being here. Um, in, in fact, I actually, I have I have proof of that. Uh, I don't know if you have the clip there ready to play. I was on the Steve Wright show, right, um, promoting my own uh, little career uh, <laughs> not too long ago, and uh, see if see if you can spot some of the fanboy ship within this clip. <laughs> Great to meet you, Ben, and we'll see you again. Thank you very much, and good luck with it. Thank you. Love the show, Steve. Thank you very much. That's a thing to say. Milk is required. There you go. So I think you know I, they're stealthy. Stealthy. You just slipped it in. At slipped the end. it in because you know I hear a lot of uh, listeners talking about trying to uh, say hello to to Jason Jason Isaacs at the the end of very serious lectures or discussions in in public, and I, I'm just not sure how I would do that. But that seemed the easiest way to do it. It was if you're ever going to say love the show, Steve, and get away with it, Perfection. it's going to be on Steve Wright's show. Perfection. It makes perfect sense. So, so interesting. We've got two fans here, myself yeah, quite, and quite. yourself included. One uh, thing I would say, I, I mean, a, a piece of advice I would give you: be very careful about any sort of personal or sensitive information that you might use <laughs> to mention about yourself in the show. I mean, last time I was on, I, it came out in passing that I was a second bassoonist uh, in, in, a, in a previous life. And yeah. Since then, I kind of feel to the production team I've become a sort of a figure of fun and I slightly regret ever mentioning it because you know Mark the next time I saw Mark at a screening he came in and smirkingly referred to me as an oboe player which first of all mm, is just is a different instrument so he's got it wrong in the first place but again there was this kind of derisive tone and then today you know we're wearing people perhaps watching on the on the webcam they will see that we're wearing these Eddie the Eagle style I've just realised I totally forgot I was wearing these yeah right so we put them on about had them on for too long yeah and we, we forgot I thought yours was pres- prescription that's how long it's been but there's the thing so I came in and put them on and uh, Robin just looked at me and and, and, and nodded and solemnly said yep and it turned out that they previously decided that first of all they decided you could pull the glasses off which i think of, of course you, you can mm. very very stylishly so but that oh, I, well thank you very much i look like someone that would appear on open university at 4 a.m or something like that. yeah just, yeah or flashed up uh, on, a, on a screen at the end of a news report a disturbing <laughs> one but you know so if you can access a webcam have a look and you'll see that they're completely wrong and i think i'm pulling off these glasses pretty well. i think so as well we, we might start jutting our chins out in the second half of the show we'll see how we get on so you have uh, you have uh, a proper fanboy here hosting the show for you guys. I guess in a nutshell, instead of Mark and Simon this week, you've got that man versus superfan. Uh, Quite, yeah. yeah. Dawn of just us, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and since it is just us, uh, Robbie, why don't we have a look at the uh, this week's top 10? Yes, in at 10, or sorry, still hanging on at 10, I should say, is Deadpool, which has been mm. around for uh, seven weeks now. Wow. And has made £37.5 million, which is an extraordinary amount of money for yes. what is relatively low budget and as these things go, a risky superhero and film. Not to 12, right? So no, no, it's a 15, exactly. So they're already slicing at an enormous part of the, the target market for superhero movies. What's interesting is it's now this week it's passed over the threshold of the last X-Men film. So Deadpool was sold as from the makers of X-Men. It now almost makes sense to sell the next X-Men film as from the makers of Deadpool because Mm. this film has done better business. And I think it's generally got better reviews and a better fan reaction. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's, it's, uh, indicative of the, you know, the the way that it really reimagined 
uh, so many of the sort of cliches around superhero films and, and threw them back in your face. And I know a lot of people said, oh, it thinks it's clever or it thinks it's smarter than it is. I think it just enjoys itself. It and does it, have a lot of fun. And I think for me, when I was watching it, I thought these cliches feel like problems with superhero films five years ago that the genre has by and large pretty much got past. Mm. Of course, the evidence of a certain mm. film released last week showed that was 100% not the case. <laughs> and so it well, suddenly becomes Deadpool's cheekiness and irreverence suddenly seems more relevant to me than it yeah. did maybe a week ago. And let's face it, one of the funniest opening titles I think I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, which was originally just a placeholder and then they just loved really? it. Really? They kept it, yeah. Ah, brilliant. That's that's great. Oh, and at nine we have... Uh, High Rise. High Rise. Which is, um, an adaptation of J.G. Ballard novel by Ben mm. Wheatley, uh, this kind of vision of the future that is itself mired in the past about societal breakdown. You've got Tom Hiddleston as this Dr Lang who moves into this high rise that becomes symbolic of the kind of middle chunk of British society. Now, we were talking earlier that you know, when you listen to the news headlines, it kind of sounds like Britain of the early 1980s. Yeah, yeah. And this film really uncannily taps into that in that it is set in the future and it's got its ideas rooted in the past, but it feels like a film that is talking about this country right now. And I was slightly stunned by it when I saw it. I really would like to see it again to to, to further make sense. So it's a story from the past, set in the future, that really reflects about reflects now. the real present. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. We actually we got an email here from uh, from Jack Orchard, who on High Rise, who says I, I felt moved to write in because I broke a long streak of non cinema going since Star Wars in brackets. Was it? This like is presumably the Force Awakens. Is that, oh, right. OK, let's hope it's The Force Awakens. If it isn't, that's 39 years of, of, of a long streak. Um, uh, so he broke it this evening to go and see High Rise, and I'm still buzzing from it, unable to sleep, until I articulate what an incredible experience it was. I could go on about the jagged beauty of the brutalist architecture or the incredible performances by Tom Hiddleston and Luke Evans, and I agree with Mark that the real star of the film is Amy Jump's flawlessly perfect script I wanted to write in, however to flag up the way in which Ben Wheatley's direction and Clint Mansell's score unite to give the film its most hauntingly significant resonance with the Bellardian source material. Uh, the film forces us to breathe, as the characters do, even while the images on screen become ever more horrifying. A perfect Wheatley film of, near, of a near-perfect Ballard novel. I think that I absolutely agree with every word of that. And I would add that I think it uses Tom Hiddleston incredibly well. It, I think a key part of Hiddleston's appeal as an actor is he mm. has this kind of slightly offhandedly cruel nature about himself. That, mm. I mean, it came across obviously very powerfully in as Loki in the Marvel of Avengers course. films. But this really taps into it in a different way. I was really impressed by it. It's a very divisive film. I actually heard okay. one of the most passionate arguments I've ever heard about a film in a coffee shop about High Rise. Overheard? Uh, you were with, well, I mean, involved. I kind of was passing by and then, okay. you know, picked up a book and sort of eavesdropped for a while. But it was, you know, these, <laughs> one of the guys really loved it and someone else really hated it. But it's that kind of divisive movie. Well, that's that's what that's what a great film should be. You know, that's what it should be, I think. Um, at number eight, we've got the Divergent series, uh, Allegiant. Allegiant, which is if you've not, you know, been hanging on to, you know, find out the latest things from the Divergent series, which I don't think anyone apart from film critics who are obliged to see them really are. Um, you know, this is a, a film, it's a young adult sci-fi franchise starring Charlene Woodley, who is massively misused, underused in the, the, the lead role of Tris Pryor. What Allegiant does is it ditches the premise of the first two Divergent films and just spins off in a totally different direction. You've got Jeff Daniels playing this evil geneticist who's living out in the, this kind of Mad Max style wasteland in this glittering city. 
it really very powerfully doesn't work. It feels like a lot of ideas, magpie pilfered from different sources, Mad Max I've mentioned. Of course, mm. The Hunger Games is an enormous influence. And it feels like everyone involved in the movie is just running out of steam. There is one more of these to go and I will be there's frankly still one quite more. glad and, to and have it done with. Is, is, it, is it one of these films where it's saying, hold on, because there's going to be great stuff in a year's time when we bring out the next one? Well, no, it's one of these I films that's no taken, that. it's taken the last book in the series, which is called Legion, and split it in two. So like The Hunger Games did with Mockingjay, they split it in two. Mm. Harry Potter, of course, uh, Deathly Hallows was split in two. And in this one, it's, you know, it just kind of shows up the relative weakness of the source material. You know, the, the Hunger Games books, Suzanne Collins' source novels, are actually great reads. Mm. And this is the, the Allegiant book is not a good read. None of the Divergent books are particularly good reads. And it just kind of shows the weakness of the source material in doing this. Yeah. I mean, you know, a good book's a good book. If you can get it into one film, then do it. That's what I say. Absolutely. No one wants to see high and then rise. Do you know what I mean? We want to see high rise. <laughs> Quite. Um, okay, and number seven is The Boy. Yes, this is a horror film that was not screened for critics, having looked at the oh, reviews. So you've got, not seen this one? I've not seen it. it. It wasn't screened in the UK for critics. It was in the States, and having seen the reviews it got in the States, mm. it kind of makes sense that they didn't screen it. Right. I don't even know if we've got any correspondence. I, no, we haven't. I've not seen it, but I have seen the trailer, and it was hilarious. Um at six, we've got London Has Fallen. Yes, this is the aggressively horrible follow-up to Olympus Has Fallen, which was sort of <laughs> roughly be described as Die Hard in the White House, where you had Jared Butler playing the bodyguard mm -hmm. of the US president, and there was this faintly implausible North Korean attack on the White House in the first one. In this one, they're over in the UK for the UK Prime Minister's funeral, and this is the time that this kind of massive terrorist cabal launches this uh, mm. very carefully preposterously cleanly synchronised attack on basically every single world leader that's in town. And what's interesting is the film is asking you to basically cheer on a bloodthirsty racist because Jared Butler's <laughs> character is completely obnoxious, but his views aren't at all refracted through a kind of a lens where people are kind of going, you know, that comment about uh, Islam is probably pretty off colour. The film just kind of blasts wow. out there. And it's actually quite satisfying to see it's not doing... Uh, anywhere nearly as well as Olympus Has Fallen, which I quite enjoyed. It was a nasty, cruel action film, but mm. it was quite punchy and concise. And this is just bloated and rubbish and overflowy with compromise and just nastiness. I've just realised I had a recall um, for a small part in London Has Fallen, and I'm really glad to say now... It's a narrow <laughs> feels, escape. feels like I've dodged not just a bullet, but a series of CGI bullets. <laughs> yep. Um, at five, we have uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, which I'm delighted is is doing as well as it is. J.J. Abrams, uh, who is one of the great showmans in, in, in Hollywood now, if not the greatest, has very cleverly devised... I mean, he's seen that franchise filmmaking is where the money is. So he's very cleverly devised a franchise for films that don't fit into franchises. So you have Cloverfield, which was this incredible standalone mm. uh, monster movie that kind of riffed on 9-11 anxieties. That was back out in 2008, I think it was. It was quite a long time ago. And then 10 Cloverfield Lane is another sci-fi flavoured film that kind of trades on real world anxieties that are very popular. Uh, not popular, sorry, very, very current and very, very kind of big talking points at the moment. But it does it in quite an oblique way. It's about um, this uh, woman, Michelle, who's played by Mary Elizabeth Winston, basically, the, the, I think, the best performance she's ever given. Wow. Who wakes up one day in an underground bunker, which is owned by, uh, kind of presided over by John Goodman, who tells her that there has been some kind of attack outside. He doesn't really know nuclear, chemical, China, Iran, not really sure. But she can't go outside anymore. She's just got to live in here and sit it out for the next two years until the air clears up. 
And there's this sense is, you know, is he telling the truth? Is he kind of constructing this fake reality to keep her contained and under his control? But then strange clues that she picks up suggest that there is an element of truth. Now, the best thing you can do if you're going to see 10 Cloverfield Lane is not know anything about it mm. and just work out, you know, experience these different revelations along with Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character. But I thought it was incredibly uh, well-scripted, incredibly well-paced. And for me, it actually worked slightly better than Room. I know Mark is an enormous fan of Room. It's another wow. film, but close confinement. Well, I think shout. this... Uh, just putting that slightly genre spin on it made it kind of bypass some uh, some kind of wall of, you know, when, when you absorb realistic dramas on one level, but you can absorb genre entertainment another way and it can touch you in a way that a realistic drama can't. And I mm. thought this was really, really successful at doing that. Mm, well, uh, Chris Tolliday uh, chimes in uh, on the email saying, if you're going to see this film expecting a sequel to Monster Flick Cloverfield, you'll be thoroughly disappointed as this is not a film centred around that story, despite producer J.J. Abrams claiming it is a blood relative. In fact, it's because they have linked this to Cloverfield that the film loses all the credibility it initially builds, as if the Cloverfield aspect was tacked on at a later date. For 70 minutes of its 90-minute runtime, this is a taut, tense, creepy thriller that drip-feeds information to leave you second-guessing every twist and turn. However... The solid psychological thriller soon turns into a silly affair that doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie, and that ultimately makes it a disappointment. So, Chris, think, look, it's fair to say that the final act of this film is make or break territory mm. because at some point she's going to have to leave the bunker. I mean, that's, you, know, you yeah. put someone in a box; they've got to come out of it at some stage. And it's what she finds when she gets out, which I'm not going to describe. Please don't say anymore because I've not seen this yet. But that's when you either go with it or don't. And I, I really went with it. I, right. It was, okay. it was incredible. As long as she doesn't go out and find a camera and then we have to watch the last 20 minutes <laughs> via her footage, I think I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy it. Um, uh, number four, we have My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Two. Yes, which was this incredibly limp and uh, flaccid follow-up to the, the ultimate word-of-mouth success comedy from a, a few years ago, which really kind of um, came out of nowhere and just played and played and played in cinemas. Obviously struck a chord with people. I don't think this sequel is particularly striking the same kind of chord. It's the same jokes done over again and just so incredibly without subtlety. The jokes land like someone throwing a piano out of a fourth floor window Ouch. when it's just like kind of crunch, <laughs> crunch, crunch all the way through the film. And I wonder if, you know, this is just a sort of a, a, a cheap kind of a cash-in on a property that was very successful a long time ago. And it just seems to be retreading that. It doesn't pass, this, I mean, it doesn't even, it doesn't pass the six laugh test, it doesn't pass the one laugh test. You know, wow. I just kind of sat... Uh, stony face throughout. Oh dear. Um, well, uh, I can tell you, Nick Reeve has, has sent in an email. He 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 laughed a, a, a little bit more. Okay. Says, does, uh, does he give a specific number? Uh, let's have a look. He says, "Dear Telegram and Telegreek, last week Mark was left unimpressed by my big fat Greek wedding too. I write in a vague defence, a vague defence of what I thought to be a quite funny, if flawed, film. I went to see it at a generic multiplex on Saturday with a close friend who'd seen the first film and enjoyed it. Now I'm no rom com." fan, nor am I particularly keen on any American comedies. Wow, on any American comedies. In short, BBC News style, is it formulaic? Yes. Is it funny all the way through? No. Did I laugh six or more times? Yes, I did. Wow. Was I pleasantly surprised after going in with low expectations? Yes. Perhaps it's because I hadn't seen the first that the jokes hit with uh, hit with me more than they did with Mark. Ah, so there you go. Yeah. Yes, that's it. That's it. It's a retread. Uh, there you go. Interesting. 
Yeah, so I wonder if that's what it is. He says, I, I doubt that I'll go and seek out the original as I doubt that there is much different. Uh, I could probably guess the plot and half of the script already, but it was a bit of harmless fun. Thanks, Nick. That does seem a strange way round to do it. It's certainly it? harmless. And what surprises me, I think when Nia Vardlos sat down to write this film, she wouldn't have particularly consider that anyone who hadn't seen the first movie already would go and see it, you know. Mm. So perhaps that's the audience that it will work for, people who somehow missed My Big Fat Greek Wedding 1, but are interested <laughs> in Big Fat Greek Weddings in general as a subject <laughs> for a film. Regardless of what number comes Exactly. Uh, well, here's another number for you, number three, uh, where we have Kung Fu Panda 3. Yes, which I was really relieved to enjoy because it feels like a long time since DreamWorks have had just an unqualified, successful film. You know, I've, I don't think I've really enjoyed a DreamWorks animation since Kung Fu Panda 2. Mm. And this just has the same kind of warmth and humour and in really sharply devised physical comedy um, that the, the, the first two Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda films did so well. Uh, so I was very pleased that this kind of came out as well as it did. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, my kids were really into... Well, no, actually, that's a lie. They weren't really into Kung Fu Panda 1. It's sort of past the time, but they've never shown or demanded any further interest in the sequel. So we haven't seen this one. Um, but I'm reliably informed by a number of parents that it's it's a decent pass of, of, of 90 minutes. It's I'm, a very, very decent... I mean, I think it's more than that. Something that computer-generated animation really struggles with, particularly outside of Disney and Pixar, mm. where they have the this tradition of hand-drawn animation to draw on, is getting weight and momentum behind characters. And often CGI can feel slightly like it's just, you know, vaporously light and nothing's really connecting when it hits together. Not enough hits. In a film with a lot of kung fu, that's obviously vital. Mm. And that's something that the animators have done really successfully. Okay. With Nice. I might get you saying Kung Fu Panda really fast a few more times. No, no, just don't because it could go. It could go very. Or, or, or very Paul Blart Morcock. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, at number two, we've got another uh, animation, Zootropolis. Yes. Now, who would have thought of last week's two major releases that the most epically scaled and morally complex of the two would be the one with the talking bunny rabbit? But that's <laughs> how it's turned out. This is uh, the latest. Uh, Disney Animation Studios film um, about Judy Hopps and Nick Wilde, who are uh, rabbit policewomen and a fox conman who unite to find this otter who's gone missing in this enormous sprawling city for mammals. Now, it's kind of, it, it, it begins as this kind of, I don't know if you know the children's illustrator Richard Scarry, who yeah. has these incredible, oh, big time. yeah, big sort of busy city scenes of lots of animals running around doing the, you know, kind of daily jobs and kind of leisure, speeding around in cars, you know, going to the cinema, playing in the park and all this kind of stuff. The film starts out like a Richard Scarry illustration. It really does. I love Richard Scarry. So that's, that's very, very great. But then it swings into this slightly weird noirish territory and starts to riff on Chinatown. As actually the critic Anne Bilson very astutely pointed out on Twitter, Chinatown is a bigger reference point for kids' cartoons than you would think. Wrangle was very much to do with Chinatown as well. True. Um, and so... This is the fact that it can somehow go into this noir territory but keep up this incredible um, energy and wit as well, I think is incredibly impressive. And I always think that's risky as well to keep referencing these adult movies. You know, sometimes it feels like a bit of a cop out. But I went to see Zootropolis with, uh, with, with my two and. <sighs> We just loved it all the way through. I mean, uh, the Richard Scarry thing is a, is a genius uh, uh, um, sort of uh, analogy because I really remember those books. And, and 
one thing that really sticks out is the different size of worlds within Richard's scary books. You know, he always made room at the bottom of a building for the mice. Exactly. You know, or smaller cars for the mice. It's been tiny incredibly cleverly thought through. They, they've done the same thing. You're right, Richard Scarry. That's great. There's there's quite a lot of uh, correspondence on Zootropolis. Um, one that interests me the most is actually something I was discussing with my kids before we went in to see it. Uh, and it's touched on here for, uh, by Marcus Widmer, or perhaps Widmer, um, who is, uh, well, he, he's, he's studying in English, German and film studies at Zurich. Uh, he says, uh, I went to see Zootopia with my family here in Vienna, Austria. Um, since my children don't speak English, we naturally went to see the dubbed version. I really like the movie. Somewhat convoluted mystery plot aside. I didn't find it that convoluted, but there we go. Uh, and it's beautiful world building. But the title of the German version irritated me. It's called Zoomania. Now, this is continuing a very odd tradition to translate English movie titles into German by coming up with a worse English title or even a title in worse English. Classic example, copycat turned into copy kill. Uh, he goes on to say Zoomania makes no sense whatsoever uh, and he, he can't think of a reason for the change. Do they think the British don't know what utopia means? I seriously doubt that. He, he ends the email. There is, in the original title, this kind of quite nice, bittersweet resonance because the idea when Judy arrives mm. in Zootropolis, as it is in the, in, in the UK version, it seems like a perfect city. And the idea that, you know, Zootopia, obviously Utopia, the perfect city, is, is, is quite sweet, particularly when she then discovers that actually these people aren't rubbing along quite mm. as smoothly as things would first appear. And, you know, the, the theme of this film isn't the idea that everyone can kind of come together and be all the same and all wonderful. It's actually about difference. And it's yeah. about the fact that difference can be, well, it can be very funny and it can be very difficult and it can also be very beautiful. And that's a tricky uh, concept for adults to conjure with, let alone kids. I agree 100%. But the fact that Disney trusts a young audience to go with that and chew it over, I think is very, very admirable. I thought it was really refreshing that. And I, I have to say, I came out and had a, a long discussion uh, with, with, with my two daughters about the film. And, and the older one said, I think it's about race, which really shocked me. And then I thought, you know what? That's interesting because, you know, being in a, a mixed race family and whatnot, these are things we're thinking about and myself growing up in the 80s. And I think there was a really interesting message in there about, about you know, the racial, racial mixing, how, how people uh, live together. But it, crucially, like you say, it's not about... Um, just pretending you're not different is making the most of your difference and, and seeing how tolerant that world is around you. There's there's so much, uh, so many more emails uh, on Zootropolis, a lot of opinion out there. Um, John Peel says, uh, I was dragged to Zootropolis by the lady friend very much against my will and having settled into my seat at the local case of show, uh, was prepared for a boredom slash irritation, one, two. Instead, I left the cinema grinning like the proverbial and having thoroughly enjoyed this family noir, uh, with a highly topical comment on the politics of fear, uh, strong, well-written female characters and a message for the little children that you can't be anything you want to be because actually we all have limitations and flaws uh, and maybe we should make allowances for the flaws. Um, oh, yeah, and a hilarious sloth bit that seemed to be out of a Stuart Lee show. I, full stop, loved, full stop, it. Yours, John, in Bristol. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of that. I have to say the majority of this correspondence is very positive. And um, I wonder if, I mean, you know, D Disney, 
so often people have said, oh, Disney, Disney's, you know, it's gone. And now, you know, with Zootropolis and, and, and the Jungle Book coming up, do you, do you think that, you know, they're, they're, there's a good run coming for Disney? Well, I think Disney has really, particularly in their animation studio, has really rallied since the arrival of John Lasseter there um, a few years ago. You know, he came on board while they were finishing off Bolt. And that was the first of the Disney animations that he had an, an influence on. He then, I think the first thing that he did uh, when he arrived was put The Princess and the Frog back into production, which had been axed because it was hand-drawn and old-fashioned. Mm. I think the week before he got there, the first thing he did was to reverse that decision. And John Lasseter is just someone who really fundamentally understands that you can tell very complex stories uh, to a very young audience. You know, this is the guy who helped start up Pixar and who his philosophy is ultimately born out in the Toy Story films and in some of the Inside Out. I mean, Inside Out, just a wildly complex and strange set of ideas in a film, but something that you can show to a six-year-old and they will come out with this totally lucid mm. understanding of how human emotion works. Mm. Uh, he's moved that philosophy over to Disney and that's why you're getting this incredible range of films like Big Hero 6 uh, recently as well. Um, Frozen, of course, Tangled, which mm. was a, a, a real kind of a... Lasseter triumphant that he showed that Disney could do the old stuff in a new way mm-hmm. and then Zootropolis which is like the new stuff in a new way yeah and long may it continue um Robbie please let everybody out of their misery yeah. what is the number one film in the UK the right number now? one film in the UK right now is Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice okay can well, you believe I'm you know I'm gobsmacked this um, I mean what's really I mean there are a million things that are interesting about this film which by the way I should, I should Clearly, first of all, I really strongly did not like this film at all. Okay. Um, now, when the reviews landed last week, uh, there was this idea that Warner Brothers had perhaps set themselves up for a fall. This is a movie that's got to launch this four-year, nine-film business plan to take them through two Justice League movies, uh, umpteen different spin-offs with separate characters, possibly Ben Affleck writing a Batman film of his own. And then the reviews were all very bad. It's like, okay, so what's going to happen next? And then it opened very big uh, in the UK. It's, it's made 14.6 million, which is the biggest opening weekend for any superhero film ever over three days and then the kind of narrative changed to well this means of course that film critics don't know what they're talking about and that you know audiences will turn up to see batman fight superman regardless of what critics think and i think you know this this first of all gets the job of critics completely wrong nobody goes into film criticism because they want to sabotage a business plan you know that's just not (laughs) what they want to do is watch movies and respond to them and try and set them in context and unpick what works about them and what doesn't what's interesting is in the states i've not seen the, the uk figures but in the states Batman versus Superman has had the biggest box office drop-off between its opening Friday and its opening Sunday in history. So obviously there's some, you know, word of mouth is not as passionate as it is for something like Star Wars The Force Awakens, which just kind sure. of, you know, opened big and stayed, stayed there. Big. It also got uh, a B cinema score. Now, the cinema score system is something that is like a kind of an exit poll that this company runs out in the States. They go and poll opening night audiences and say, you know, on a scale of A plus to F, how would you rate this film? Now, superhero movies and generally blockbusters all land between A plus and A minus because the opening weekend crowd turn out to see a film that they want to see. And if the film gives them what they wanted or what they expected, they're happy, their money was well spent, and so they rate it highly. Now, other superhero films that have opened with a B include Green Lantern and Catwoman, which are both now obviously derided as kind of preposterous flops. Now, I don't necessarily think Batman vs Superman is as bad as those films, but I think there's something fundamentally going wrong here. that The vision of these two characters that it's serving up for, you know, let's not forget, supposed to be a mass market audience Mm. that are going to support this franchise and keep Warner Brothers afloat and riding high for the next half decade. It's just not striking that chord. Now, I personally, you know, 
when it comes to superhero films, I don't mind if they don't do that. You know, Deadpool was a film that deliberately set out not to do that and has ironically done very, very well off the back of it. There have been a lot of complaints about Batman versus Superman in terms of, you know, Zack Snyder as a filmmaker does not understand the character of Batman or he doesn't understand who Superman is and what he stands for. Right. It's too nihilistic and too grim. You know, you've got a Batman in this movie who is stabbing people and shooting people with a machine gun. And in one thing, I think he runs the Batmobile over someone's face. I, I have this vague memory of that happening during the Batmobile action sequence. Now, I think if that is consistent within the world of the film, and the film kind of is coherent with those ideas, and it stands up under its own steam... I'm fine with that. You know, a nihilistic Batman film is fine. Something with Superman, who is this sort of removed uh, figure who regards humanity with this kind of pitiless, pitiful stare, is interesting. But the film is so shambolically put together, and particularly for its first hour, it just feels like a jumble of scenes that are trying to tick off this movie executive's list of we have to set up this film, we have to set up that film, we have to have a rescue scene, we have to do this, we have to do that. It's a mess. Robbie, the setup thing, I mean, just just one thing. Uh, the, I wasn't sure if I was seeing it or not, but it felt like there was a trailer in the middle of the film. Am I freaking this is out or did this happen? This really happens. I um, was really tired, so I don't know if I was hallucinating. Well, look, no, no, I no, felt you, like you, I saw a trailer for another film there's, there's in a, the middle of the film. There's a moment where Wonder Woman sits down at a laptop and basically watches three trailers for Justice exactly. League spin-off she watches. So I'm not a, going crazy. There's, there's a like, video clip of The Flash doing his high-speed thing. There's a video clip of Cyborg being built. And there's a video clip of Aquaman. Uh, Aquaman as well, who kind of is underwater and he looks at the camera. And it's just, she's sitting, you know, these characters are being introduced on a laptop screen. It's insane. It was, it's, you know, it was sort of sold as like CCTV footage or something like that. But they, they were brilliantly edited trailers. There was, no, there was no way around it, just with a grainy effect on top. That really freaked me out. Um, but it's interesting what you're saying about critics as, as well, um, because we've got, we've got, I mean, there's, the correspondence here is I'm drowning in it. You can see on the, uh, the, the, the stream, if, if, if you tune into that, I've got an entire Bible on, on Batman versus Superman. But there there is some stuff that will attempt to uh, 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 slap the critics back into their place. Well, go on, let's, <laughs> slap me. Let's, let's, have, <laughs> let's it. have a look. Um, okay, let's start with... Uh, how about Christian Whitaker, who says, I am completely astonished by the poor reviews the film has been getting. Like many of your listeners, I'm sure, I'm not a comic book fan, uh, though I gather the film has been well received by uh, by them. Um, but I am a big fan of the Christopher Nolan films and to a lesser, lesser extent, Man of Steel. Perhaps assisted by lower expectations, thanks to Mr Kermode and others, I was completely gripped by the film from start to finish. I thought the seemingly incoherent storyline was a purposeful attempt to keep the audience guessing until the end of the scene. Uh, at the end of a scene, I should say, at which point they were filled in as to what was going on and where we were, a tactic which contributed to keeping me engaged throughout. And that's from Christian Whitaker. Very little uh, negative to say about it. And, and I continue. Um, this is this is a uh, Paul Reynolds um, who's written in to say, as an avid fan of superhero movies, I must bring my frustrations to bear with not the movie, but the critics. Okay. So. <laughs> So often now, perfectly good, if not perfect, superhero movies are slain for failing to be a five-star epic that thrilled both your mind and spirit, exclamation mark. That's why I'm shouting, guys. What is wrong with making a movie that my 12-year-old son loved, which his 38-year-old dad enjoyed, and in particular enjoyed as a father-son evening out? I request all movie critics 
throw out their current format of expectation when being privileged enough to attend early screenings and just sit back, relax, zone out and enjoy the escapism. There's another exclamation mark there. Maybe then the imperfections will be noted, but more attention will be spent on what's right rather than what's wrong. Another exclamation mark. As for the movie itself, with the soundtrack, which I loved, especially Wonder Woman music, four stars. That's from Paul Reynolds. (laughs) Well, let's talk about expectation, because I think, you know, generally film critics are not fans of Zack Snyder. I actually do think he's made more good films than bad films. I think he's made some incredibly interesting stuff. His Dawn of the Dead remake, we won't get into this now, but I think the Dawn of the Dead remake stands up on its own two feet. I think Sucker Punch, um, which uh, Mark will kill me for saying on this programme, but I think Sucker Punch is a really interesting and underrated film. I think the problem is that, you know... When you bring expectations to bear, this is a film that has had an enormous amount of money spent on it. $250 million is the official budget. It has been in development for three years. And after that amount of time and the stakes that are riding on it, it hasn't told a coherent story. I just think, you know, why have you even bothered? Star Wars has had even more pressure on it when, when it came to The Force Awakens to tee up a new franchise. And the storytelling in that is just incredibly, you know, it draws obviously on the structure of the original Star Wars film. It's classic and it's clean. You know who the characters are. Their actions make sense. There is a moment, and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to describe it fully because it's, in theoretically, it's a spoiler. But where the word Martha, the entire basically the entire fate of Metropolis and Gotham City hinges on the word Martha. It very now, certainly does. It just makes no sense that humans or superhumans would behave in that way nope. when hearing the word nope. Martha. There has nope. to be something more to it. And similarly with Lex Luthor, Jesse Eisenberg's version of the character. Now, look, I find that a very it's a very annoying mannered performance. I appreciate other people might not think so. But none of his plans have any purpose or any aim. He starts talking about how his dad didn't like him, but then that's just swept to the side. Then he starts talking about how he wants to kill God, but that's swept to the side. (laughs) Then he talks about how he wants Batman to kill God, and that's swept to the side. Then he talks about how he wants to create a demon to kill God, and then that becomes the big showdown at the end. So it's it's, it's a total kind of a mishmash with no clarity of Mm. thought or vision. And, you know, to have three years to do this and to not do it, I just think is unbelievable. Well, you talk about drawing on coherent structure, you know, the source material is there. It's there. I mean, I've, I've heard uh, references to The Dark Knight Returns, uh, the Frank Miller comic book, which is one of my favourite comics of all time. I first read it when I was, you know, in, in my early teens. It's a, there's a great story in there and a great story about the Superman-Batman battle, but it's, it's, not, it's not in the film. Right, exactly. So and the, actually, the Frank Miller gets a shout-out in the, the end credits for helping to inspire this particular vision of the world. You know, um, Zack Snyder is in his defence, an incredible visual stylist. Mm, definitely. And he has this kind of eye for like a fascist aesthetic. By fascist, I don't mean morally fascist, <laughs> but in the same way you can have fascist architecture. Sure. These incredibly kind of clean, dramatic angles and you know, a kind of a sensuality that's embedded in everything else. And... Um, he gets that and he does it in a way that no other director really working today does, particularly not in, in kind of mainstream action movies. So that's sort of interesting. But the fact that, you know, he's he's not kind of able to reconcile that into storytelling is really worrisome. Yeah. Did you get this from it? It's just a weird thing I got from it. I wasn't sure if it was just me. I weirdly felt like there wasn't really that much Batman, Superman or Lois Lane in a film called Superman versus Batman or Batman versus Superman. I, they, they just didn't seem to be there 
enough, doing enough things. There, there seemed to be a lot of time taken on people saying, you know, a bit of business about where they were going and then and a lot of running to and from places. I got really lost in the geography of where people were going, how how close Gotham was to Metropolis. I just, I couldn't work any of that stuff out. Yes, right. And this kind of messiness kind of feeds into something that a lot of critics have heard, fed back on the reviews, was that these films are not supposed to be fun like the Marvel films. <laughs> They're supposed to be very, very serious. Oh, imagine that. Well, the idea of fun that critics are asking for when they say this film is no fun, it's not to do with, you know, banter between the leads or kind of jokes or silliness. Mm. It's to do with the film itself being constructed with a degree of wit. So you've got kind of yeah. interesting, like, well-worked out match cuts, you know, spiky dialogue, dramatic irony being set up, poetic justice payoffs and things like that. It's the kind of the, the wit of the film. It's not the wit of the characters that people, are, that, that people are looking for. The Christopher Nolan films are a perfect example of this. Very sober, very, very sombre movies. But they're put together with real kind of sparkling intelligence and wit. And mm. so when you're watching it, the film is like, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. What you're seeing now isn't this great. Look what we've done. What a surprise. Batman versus Superman just does not have that voice in it at all. Robert Kerr found a lot more wit in it. Uh, he emailed us, uh, emailed into us saying it was better than we expected, but we didn't expect much after Man of Steel. We got plot holes and over-the-top special effects. We even passed the six laughs test inside the first 10 minutes. Not I don't think it was aiming for that, but fair enough. I got one laugh and it was Martha related. But anyway, he says, I'd really like to see someone recut these films to 100 minutes. So so would I, Rob. So would I. Cut out the dream sequences, the Rocky-esque montage and tighten the action scenes. Uh, Thank you, Robert. Um, Also, we've got Simon Billington who says, I loved Batman versus Superman and I have a question uh, regarding a common critique that many critics and viewers have raised, which is the issue of it being narratively incoherent. I and many others had no problem following what was happening and why. Uh, what in the film do you think causes some people to easily understand the main plot, plot structure and story whilst others don't? I think <laughs> inherently forgiving nature. I mean, if you take Batman's wow. dream sequence where he has this vision of Darkseid and the parademons and all this stuff going on, that is just dumped in the middle of the narrative like a breeze block. And if you haven't seen, you know, if you've got no awareness of who Darkseid is or who these parademons are or this kind of omega-sized sigil that Batman sees in the desert, none of this makes any sense. And it doesn't make any sense even once the scene is over. You have to come into the film with this pre-knowledge of all these kind of logos and monsters and things. It has no relevance to anything that happens in the rest of the film. Apparently, it's setting up something that's going to happen in the Justice League movies. Well, great, but if you're going to do that, there's a coherent way to do it and a way to lead people in. Mm. If you're going to make this film as a mass market product, it has to engage with an audience in a very kind of honest, direct way. And that's just how blockbuster filmmaking works. I got quite into one of the dream sequences and not realising it was meant to be a dream sequence. And then when it ended, it was very much a sort of Bobby Ewing moment for me. I was like, oh, all right. (laughs) Right. Right. One of the dreams, Batman wakes up from the dream and then he's still in another dream. He wakes up twice. He was in another dream. Oh, it's a dream, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Okay, uh, Vicky, uh, last one on this. We might come back to it in a bit. But uh, Vicky Sawsby says, my boyfriend Matt and I have been to see Batman versus Superman this evening at our local show of Case Cinema. Unfortunately, I was bored rigid by the movie, but my mood wasn't helped by the fella next to me who managed to extend the life of his bucket-o-popcorn from sitting down next to me when the film had already started to the very 
last minute. That's uh, that's a big bucket. Um, the movie, however, was full of overblown pathos and deep, deep voices. It was so disjointed that uh, other than Superman coming up against Batman and the other dude, Ovs, I don't really remember that much of it. Um, the scene setting for the next lot of DC films was obligatory, but also fairly clunky. And although I quite like Wonder Woman, she was a bit like a sore thumb. After starting to give my opinion in the car on the way home, I was asked to keep it to myself as I would bring him down. That's in uh, quote marks there. Matt, uh, said boyfriend, apparently really enjoyed it. Yours faithfully, Vicky Sawsby, 36 and a bit from Nottingham. Thanks, Vicky. So as you can see, I mean, there's, there's literally there's loads of this and, and they, do, they do go both ways. I have to say they do go both ways. It's not all negative, not all positive, obviously. Um, maybe we'll come back to this in a little while because there is so much to say about this film and I, I sense you've still got more to say about it as well. Um, in the meantime, I'd love to talk a little bit about Victoria. Yeah, let's review Victoria. This this is a film from a German director called Sebastian Schipper, um, who's not particularly well known, but the Victoria itself has become incredibly talked about over the last few months because it was shot in one single take. Now, on an April morning in Berlin, two years ago, between about 4.30am and 7am, uh, Sebastian Schipper and his, you know, obviously incredibly talented crew and cast uh, started in an underground nightclub. And then for the next two and a quarter hours, told this kind of romantic thriller storyline all in one unbroken shot. And so there are no cuts in the final film and no joins. What you see is what the camera saw uh, on that day. And so in itself, that is a serious accomplishment. You know, long takes are something that are back in fashion now. Birdman, for example, kind of passed off the bulk of its narrative as one single take, but it was stitched together uh, from various different ones. You know, you can do that with CGI now and with obviously with digital, you can run a camera forever rather than the olden days where, you know, a canister of film would maybe last for 10 minutes. And then, as in Hitchcock's rope, you'd have to do a kind of a cheeky dissolve as the camera passed behind someone's back to pick up on the next thing. But now you can run and run and run. Um, and people were so doubtful that um, Shepard had pulled this off. When he started submitting the film to film festivals, they were rejecting it and saying, well, we just don't believe that this is what you did. You know, we, there's like obviously a con involved here. Like seeing magic. Exactly, exactly. But this film actually is the, the, the real magical deal. Now, it stars a Spanish actress called uh, Laia Costa, who plays a title role. She's a young woman from Madrid who's living in Berlin. And she can't particularly speak German very well, but she works at this organic cafe and she does the early shift. So before she goes to open up the cafe, she is out clubbing. And on her way out of the club, she meets this group of uh, very friendly German guys who say, you know, oh, come and hang around with us for a bit. You know, let's just um, get some beers and have a nice time and wander the city. We're going to show you the real Berlin. And so she does that for a while. And the camera kind of naturally weaves its way around the city. And something that Victoria does very, very well is use the natural geography of the city to inform the plot. So as we would, if we were wandering around the city, when you reach a crossroads, you have to make a choice. Am I going to go left? Am I going to go right? Am I going to go straight forward? And the, the way in which this single take has been choreographed very cleverly puts big decision points for Victoria at crossroads, at junctions. She gets somewhere, she has to decide, am I going to go to work? Am I going to stay with these guys? The momentum of her relationship uh, with one of the guys who's called Son, um, he, they, they kind of hit it off. They sort of obviously have a, have a kind of a chemistry going on. And this chemistry picks up momentum and, and builds and builds and builds until a kind of a point where uh, of no return. She likes him enough to make an incredibly bad decision about what she's going to do with the next few hours of her life. And things go, um, without giving too much away, things get very dramatic and slightly crimey and uh, a little bit uh, exciting. Now, I think 
you know, the first part of the film does have that kind of feel of Richard Linklater, walk and talk. It is very romantic. It has this lovely feeling for Berlin as a city at night. Something else as well as using the geography of the city is it uses the natural light very cleverly. You start off with the whole place being lit in this kind of orange, yellow, sodium, streetlight glow. And then as dawn starts to break, the image obviously becomes more blue, more cool, more purpley. And so there's this idea of progression happening that way. And then when it makes this hard left turn into more conventional thriller territory, the reason it gets away with it is because of the long take of the film itself. So you think, well, we've naturally come to this point anyway. You know, this hasn't been edited. It hasn't been reshaped in a studio at all. This is the path that this life has taken. This is something that the film does incredibly well. Um, I think something else that's very clever about the staging is that because she can't speak German, it allows these guys to talk to each other in front of her and communicate information to each other and the audience because the German dialogue is subtitled that she's not able to pick up on. So any kind of drawbacks that you can have with having to just stay on one point of action for two and a half hours, for two and a quarter hours rather, are very, very cleverly elided by the film's structure. Mm. Now, I think it's, you know... It, what it does very, very well is 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 uh, impress you with its sort of formal daring and the ambition. I'm not sure that much about this film impresses me beyond that. And that's why I don't necessarily love it as much as other critics have done. I mean, it's got some terrific reviews. Tim Roby, my colleague at the Telegraph, gave it five stars. And um, I think without ad admiring it without admiring it for the way in which it's been made is quite tricky because everything that it does well it does as a result of this momentum but it really captures the way in which life can have a dangerous momentum mm. and decisions that you would never make from a standing start can seem like the obvious or sensible thing to do mm. when you come barreling at them from a different direction i watched this movie having come back from an all-nighter in berlin so I was, I was right. very, I was very. I, I'm much, assuming this all nighter didn't. Uh, it didn't involve any ever. crime, right? Good. Um, just, a, just a very good time with some very close friends, and uh, you know, so I was more than ready for it. In fact, the two areas uh, where the the movie takes place in Kreuzberg and Mitte, I had I had been out in both of these areas. Mitte is is very well to do. Kreuzberg's really kind of grimy, um, lots lots of sort of dive bars and, and underground clubs. So it, it it really struck me straight away that, but I knew nothing about the film. Um, uh, attending the screening, nothing. I didn't know that it was going to take a, 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 any kind of criminal edge. And, and that's how I, I would hope most people get to see it because you wait less for um, a big event. You're just taken by the world and it becomes a bit... It, well, for me anyway, it became a bit more of a, a character study of this woman and why she was making the choices that she was making. And also it filled me with a huge sense of foreboding and I had no idea why. I was just really concerned for her. Well, it very cleverly seeds stuff that's going to happen later by little echoes beforehand. Mm. Like there's a moment when she first meets the guys where they go into uh, um, a kind of an all-night grocery shop and they're going to get some drinks to take up to the roof to watch the sunrise. That's right. And the guy at the counter is asleep. And she has this moment like, you know, I'm here. There's a party going to happen. Do I need to pay for this alcohol or not? And she makes a decision that's then reflected, obviously, in a much, much larger way by a later decision that she makes. So the film kind of seeds all of the stuff that you might think would be implausible later. It, mm. it, it, it does early on as well. I mean, I think as well, opening it in a nightclub is incredibly clever because you just have this uh, stroboscopic light and a few minutes of dancing to, to get yourself acclimatised to the, the mood and energy of this film. And I should say two and a quarter hours, but it flies past. It, you know, flies it, feels like, it feels like an hour tops. And the idea that one piece of music is segueing seamlessly into the next, you know, you've got a DJ mixing 
this is how life is experienced. You know, you don't hear life as a separate set mm. of tunes. Mm. It's just one continuous melody that develops in different ways. So you have that all being seeded early on in a way that's spelled out structurally in the film later. And according according to Shipper, there's a there's a cut version which he had just as a backup that he said is rubbish in comparison. <laughs> yeah. So they had to, I think they had That's to run words. through it three times and then they used the second version which was the most kind of seamless and, uh, yeah. and it, it's, it's, it's an incredible feat. Neil Innes, it can't be that Neil Innes, can it? Can't oh, be I can't the, hope it the Ruttles. It'd be great if it was. Um, he says it's nice to have been in one of the entertainment chairs. I think you both rock that Eddie the Eagle look. Mind you that... Thank ch- you, Neil. <laughs> yeah, well, he's at it. You can thank him again. He says, mind you, that chunk of hunk Robbie can pull off any look, can't he? There we are. Um, there we and are. he's left his number there at the bottom. Can I- <laughs> uh, David Kent says, hello, awfully sorry, but I thought you'd introduce yourself as Ben Babysmith. Uh, naturally, I googled you to find out who you are, but struck out. I now realise you're called Ben Bailey Smith, but you're still new to me, probably because I'm very old. Well, that's, that's fair enough. I've enjoyed very much the show so far. You've made me laugh a few times, not six. Maybe, maybe a few, I'll be, okay. uh, Thanks, Dave. Thanks, you're enjoying the show. That's fantastic. Um, we were talking Victoria before the break. Um, um, a really fascinating piece of work from a from a film fan to a, to a film critic. There's a couple of things that I just couldn't get my head around. How were they going up ladders into cars? I mean, presumably in cars squished in between two actors. He th- this couldn't have been a huge camera that that this guy's carrying. Could yes. He? Well, I mean, look, what, what's what, he carrying? What I would say is that the, the, the chief camera operator in this film gets a credit in the end credit before the director, which I think is a very <laughs> you know, d- deserving thing. Deserved. But there are so many different behind-the-scenes tricks that you can do to pull off a long take. I don't know if you've seen a film um, by director Gareth Evans called The Raid 2. Yeah, oh, um, amazing. So there are some phenomenal long takes in that. Yeah, One during are. a car chase, which I think is probably my favourite scene in the film. Now, during that, the camera passes through a car. It goes in the uh, passenger That's side right. front seat right. to the back seat, then out, and then out the back window and then off down the road again. Now, that's an impossible shot to pull off. But the way in which they did it was they had someone actually dressed up as a car seat sitting <laughs> like that. And then the minute, I mean, you would never notice really? it unless you go through on frame advance, which sadly I have done. But the minute the camera passes to where he is, he just picks it up and starts filming. And then it goes out the window to someone else who I think is on a motorbike and right. is out of shot. But there are, you know, because you're so immersed in the moment, mm. your mind is not kind of thinking, well, logistically, how is that possible? And that's how you get these impossible shots, right. like cameras kind of uh, flying up ladders and things. There's an astonishing, astonishing Russian film called I Am Cuba, um, which is like the granddaddy of all long takes. And there's a moment in it which the, the, the camera's down at a funeral procession And it goes sailing up somehow about four stories, then across a bridge through this factory of cigar workers and then flies out of the window and tracks the procession from, you know, I don't know, like 30 feet up. I have no idea how it's pulled Mm -hmm. off. And I kind of don't want to know. Because when you're watching it, it's that feeling of the floor dropping away from underneath you. Mm. The camera takes that step out of the window and flies. Mm. And this is a film that was made, you know, many, many years ago before before CGI. Oh, um, I will check that it's, one it's out. It's incredible. Um, there's, 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 there's another uh, person here who's been impressed. It's uh, Sean O'Neill who says, I saw Victoria at a preview screening in January. And I've been waiting for this weekend ever since. It is, in my humble opinion, one of the best cinematic gifts of the year and also a true masterpiece of filmmaking. It would be easy to dismiss the film as a gimmick. However, the, com- however, the combined strength of the story, characters, pace and acting not only left me engrossed and breathless, but for large portions of the runtime, I completely forgot about the brilliance of the film's mechanics, which is exactly what you were saying, Robbie. Um, the camera work 
left me feeling fully immersed in Victoria's wor- world, and the interesting use of music allowed for some moments of much needed reflection. For me, Victoria stands alongside Boyhood as a film that not only pushes the boundaries of filmmaking, but is a fantastic piece of cinema in its own right. Thank you, Sean, who uh, lists himself as a future Kermode Award winner. That's quite presumptuous. Now, uh, I said at the top of the show um, that we had a very exciting uh, special guest who uh, has been interviewed um, by Robbie, not by me. I was too busy to interview Kirsten. I mean, what kind of idiot is too busy? To interview Kirsten Dunst. Not me, evidently. <laughs> um, so uh, there's, a, there's a brand new film coming out uh, next week, so it will be uh, reviewed on the show next week. It's called Midnight Special. I'm very excited about it, partly because it's got Michael Shannon in it, and I'm just an absolute fanboy of that man. Um, we'll find out a little bit more about it from uh, from you, Robbie. Yeah, right. This is... Um, it's. The new film from a director called Jeff Nichols, whose previous work includes Take Shelter and Mud and Shotgun Stories. Um, and they're films, he makes films about people who kind of live on the outside of polite society, who might, you know, they, their beliefs don't necessarily match up with the, you know, what, what normal people believe, but that they might have something. But this is his first film to have a kind of a particular science fiction edge. It's very kind of informed by Close Encounters of the Third Kind, as we, um, Chris and I talk about in the interview. The premise of it, which I can say this, this this isn't spoilery, but it might sound a little bleak because the, really the less you know about it, the better, is that you have this boy who has been abducted from a religious commune somewhere in Bible Belt, America, and the, the man who's abducted him is his father. Now, this boy has some kind of nebulously defined abilities which the commune are very interested in holding on to and has also aroused the interests of the FBI because he's somehow accessing information that he shouldn't be privy to. So Michael Shannon, who plays the father, who's really kind of doing peak Shannon, it's exactly what you want from lots of kind of frantic <laughs> driving, you know, kind of staring out the front windscreen in the, in the dark and all this kind of frowning stuff that he does so well, who is trying to reunite uh, the, the boy with his mother, Sarah, and she is played by Kirsten Dunst. They, between them, seem to have an idea that this boy is destined for a higher purpose that other people will get in the way of doing. And here is a clip. All right, I'll get him here. If he's not dead, I'm sorry. I won't let that happen. Yeah, I hope not. He believes in something. You don't. It doesn't matter. Good people die every day believing in things. I spent two years watching another man raise our son. He did what I couldn't. He'll do anything to get him here. That was a clip from Midnight Special, and I'm joined by Kirsten now. Kirsten, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to ask you a million things about this film that I actually can't, and I'm going to be very careful and try and not tread on too many spoilers, but what is it safe for listeners to go into this movie knowing about your character, Sarah? Well, um, I would say that when you meet Sarah, she has not seen her son in two years. And she has been living on she, – she was living on a religious ranch and she's been excommunicated. So in a sense, she's been living in this silent purgatory when you meet her. And then the rest of her journey is going on a crusade for her son. That's not too much. <laughs> no, no, that's, a, that's pretty I mean, I think done. by the time you get to my character, you figure out, like, those kind of things. So, yes. But the whole movie in itself feels a little bit like, you know, an E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind or 
just like an old emblem entertainment movie. But and I can say that because Jeff Ref, Ref, Jeff Nichols, the director, references all these movies, but he's such a unique filmmaker that it doesn't matter because it's all you know coming from his anxieties and his past and. Yeah, his personal experiences. Well, this is the thing, because Midnight Special over here is rated 12.8, so it's a film that you could take children to. I mean, do you mm-hmm. see it as being a kind of a family film? Because when I was watching it myself, I was thinking back, you know, this is like these old Spielberg movies. Close Encounters is such a, an absolutely key touchstone, I think. Mm-hmm. And there is a sequence of hair cutting that reminded me of Terminator. Yeah, I don't know if that's too. deliberate or not. No, of course it did. For me too, always like, but I, I don't want to tell, say why, but yes, yes. Me, me, as, I, me as well. So those references and that kind of sense of nostalgia are all seeded very carefully through the film. But yes. I mean, do you see it as being a family movie or is it a, a movie about family? Or To be interesting, for, for me, sorry to cut you off, it feels like a, a movie that when I was younger, I didn't feel like I was allowed to see, but I was seeing it and I could. It feels like you know, when you're scared or watching an adult thing, but you're learning so much and you're getting this movie experience that you haven't experienced yet because movies just aren't like this for someone who's 13. And it it's that really exciting feeling of like, I shouldn't be watching this, but I can. I think one of the things that Jeff Nichols does incredibly well, this is his first overtly sci-fi toned film, but his other movies have been about people who are kind of on the outside of polite society and these kind of strange wilderness dwellers who actually might be onto something after all. Michael Shannon in Take Shelter, mm-hmm. you know, this feels almost like a, a kind of a twin movie with that for me, um, is this guy who's looking around saying, you know, at these storms breaking in the sky. Is anyone else seeing this? He's yeah. just kind of a mad visionary, but in the same sense, the film kind of takes his side as well. Um, when you looked at this script in the first place, Again, being very careful of spoilers, but it goes mm-hmm. to some very wild places at the end. So when you're reading this and you're saying, okay, so we've got an eight-year-old boy here who... And then in this kind of beautiful reed bed... Were you thinking to yourself, how on earth is this actually going to... you know, How is it going to work on screen? Because it, it gets quite kind of abstract and strange. I knew it would work because Jeff Nichols is a brilliant director. And I knew that whatever his vision was when he was writing this, which he writes and goes through and takes out exposition and really like he, he with such his internal like fine tooth comb, whatever that is for him, I feel like I was a fan before and I wasn't worried at all about what anything was going to look like or I was more worried about like how am I going to make this seem believable because for, for me and my character – like the weight of mm-mm-mm is mostly like through my eyes. A film like this, which was made on a very, very small budget, which is doing the kind of things that blockbusters used to do 35 years ago, mm-hmm. like Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Why is it you think that independent cinema is taking up the slack when studios are looking to make different kinds of films now? I actually think television's picking up the slack. I think independent films are also suffering. Unless it's like, you know, a Wes Anderson or you already know the brand of the director you're getting in independent film, I think it's very difficult. It's a very difficult medium. Like, no one really gets paid. Like, you really have to be, you know, very... It's a big risk, and I feel like it's mostly... It's feeling like film for television now, independent films. Like I watch independent films on the plane or at home on iTunes or you know what I mean? It's very rare that like, you know, you go to seek it out at your local cin- cinema. It's like mo- 
I feel like TV right now is for adults mostly and movies are for kids. I mean, you've been working on the Fargo TV series. Do you see a distinction between making something like that and making a film? I mean, workload-wise, TV must be different. TV's way harder. Anyone who's on a TV show for like 22 episodes, I don't know how they do it. It's so fast-paced. It's so demanding. I like. I'm happy Fargo season two was just ten episodes because the amount of work, whatever your process is, and you're for your character, or it just it's like you feel like you're running a marathon. Like you, I was, yeah, pretty tapped out after that. I like working on a TV show. I definitely would just do an ensemble role <laughs> if I ever did one again because, yeah, it's it's you don't get even half the time of making a movie. How much time do you actually have then when you get one of the Fargo episode scripts between that and then actually going on set? Well, I got I I got the first two episodes at first. Be, well, first two episodes before I actually got the role and then I I received four episodes. And then every few weeks you get another one episode. But um, which also was weird to work that way too. I'd never worked with different directors. Usually, I pick projects based on the director, so that was interesting too. Even though Noah Hawley was, you know, the director of the entire project, it's very. One time, I worked with three different directors in one day for three different episodes. So that was something I really wasn't used to, and I wasn't comfortable with at first. And then by the end, like I knew what I was doing, so I didn't really feel like, okay, like I, I got this, and and the actors, all of us together, kind of had each other's back, and our camera operator was consistent, and so, it. But it is harder to find a like a consistent like community of like, okay, this is our director, this is this, because we'd switch it up so much that um, it was it was new f- for me. I want to ask you about working with uh, Jaden Lieberer, who plays Alton. Mm-hmm. Now you came from a child acting background yourself. You've been in front of the camera, I think, pretty much since you could talk, right? You started very, very young. I started very young, yeah. Um, did that give you to a kind of a common ground on set? Were you able to to help him out, give him any kind of tips? You know, I get, he's a very wise young actor and very naturally gifted. And I, the, the one advice I did have for him is because he is homeschooled is I never was homeschooled. I always went to high school. I always went to like normal high schools. And, and that's the one thing advice I gave him. I was like, you know, if you can and find a school that will work with you, like it's so important de- developmentally to like do your movie thing and then, you know, go to the prom, be a part of a sports team, go to the football games. I'm talking all American stuff, but that kind of stuff, you know, do mm-hmm. your dances, have your lunch table. It's important. So that was my one thing I wanted him to do. And how did Jeff work with him in terms of drawing out a child? Because I, I know that directors work with children in a different way to they, they work with adult actors. Was there a particular technique or something for the, that he was able to uh, to draw out this incredibly kind of like when you say he's a, he's a wise kid, yeah. he has that look of wisdom about him throughout the film. Like he knows stuff that you, which is obviously ideal for the role, but he yeah. knows stuff that you don't. It's interesting because I. Jeff like went to all these special schools to find this like genius child and he was just at CAA at an agency in in California. Um, They had found him already. Uh, But Jeff has a way I think because Jeff has a son so he knows how to work with children and he's very patient and um, you know he picked a, a, a child that he you know knew that could carry his film and he was just talk to him like he would his own son. What was the first performance you remember doing where you thought, I have 
completely nailed this as a professional actor. This is this is something that I'm you know I'm aware that it's not just been a, a kind of a, a thing that I do. But this is a, you know, a really proud piece of work. I did a movie with my friends this last last year that's coming out this year called Woodshock. They they do a clothing line called Rodarte who, and they did the costumes, the, the all the ballerina outfits for Black Swan. And they're two very like they're just genius sisters. And I feel like after Fargo, which I, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I did this movie and that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. So I know I did things in that like for me. Even if who knows what happens with the film, but like that work so shocking and crazy that I was like, whoa, I can't believe I did that. But it feels really good, too. It gets things out of you. I don't know. It, it, the best acting for me is when I feel like something from my life like really uh, um, w- was undone and released. So, yeah. That was the the sense that I got from the film you did with Lars von Trier. Yeah, uh, for sure. Melancholia, which yeah, was just was this sh- kind of incredible, kind of soul peeling performance. After, Thank I you. mean, because you've been known, I mean, well, you know, you don't need me to tell you, you, you got best actress at Cannes for that. So that was obviously, you know, I'm assuming that film has a kind of a special place of course. in your career. But before yeah. then, you know, you'd done these three Spider Man films and you were kind of part of this kind of entrenched okay. blockbuster culture and then, you know, off to do something wild like that. I, but I also did Marie Antoinette in between that and Virgin Suicides and before that and Eternal Sunshine was like mid-Spider-Man too. So I never felt like I didn't have that balance and Spider-Man gave me the opportunities to do be, you know, someone with a value that could do an independent film and bring money to that film. And also when I started the Spider-Man movies, like Sam Raimi and Toby was like the indie cool dude at the time too. It was a very... I I look at those movies so fondly and but yeah it, after after those movies you know I think after anyone does a franchise you got to kind of figure out like wow you have all the success now what what are you going to do with this success and it, then it's up to your taste and what you want to carve out for a career of yourself and like for me I just want to work with people that inspire me because I and to try and make good things with them because you know I Otherwise, I don't want to be an actor. You know what I mean? You mentioned having the Spider-Man films being something that you could do and, and bring value to independent movies as someone who can, you know, is top-lining a blockbuster as well. Having been a part of that cycle of superhero films, now when you see the industry sort of gearing up to that again, and really, mm-hmm. I suppose, not even just gearing up, but churning right through with stuff like Batman versus Superman, do you recognise what the industry is doing now or does it feel different this time round as someone who is sort of, you know, works in the business, yeah. but is not in actually actively involved with them. It wasn't as franchise heavy when we were making Spider-Man. I think the only other one was the Star Wars reboot. I yeah, think right. around I think that time. X- X-Men was X-Men maybe was just starting, predated maybe, it, I think. I, I don't know. I'm not the expert on superheroes. <laughs> but I wouldn't mind MJ making a <laughs> appearance again. <laughs> It's a very nice paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would do MJ versus the Avengers. <laughs> well, if it gets another Jeff Nichols film, right, then yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah, I think Sally. That's all we've got time for. But Kirsten, thank you very much indeed for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh man, is she as nice as she sounds. She's lovely, and we're going to talk about Midnight Special in full next. Of course, week, yeah, because is, it's yeah. going to come out then. So we'll join Sanjeev and Robbie for that next week, guys. But. 
first and foremost, let's get back to the programme. Let's review something new that we can talk about. This yes, week. Eddie the Eagle, which is the third feature from Dexter Fletcher, who everyone's contractually obliged to remind you, Spike and Press Gang, and he hosted Games Master of Series. And then Babyface. Suddenly, and then Babyface from Bugsy Malone, of course. And then he became this uh, really interesting filmmaker um, with Wild Bill and then Sunshine on Leaf, the Proclaimers movie. Um, I've heard his, his work described quite patronisingly, I think, as, as having the common touch. I think a much better way of putting it is that he's kind of working in the British social realist tradition, but with this kind of, you know, telling stories about real people and ordinary lives. But they have a kind of an optimism and an energy and an uplift to them. So it makes perfect sense that he would make the biopic of Eddie the Eagle, who was Eddie the Eagle Edwards, um, Britain's one and only Olympic ski jumper at the Calgary Winter Olympics in 1988, um, who went on to become a, a kind of a national village character. I mean, uh, he was eccentric. He wasn't a stereotypically hunk hunky winter sports guy. Um, and he wasn't even particularly good at ski jumping, although the, the film does slightly fudge. I mean, he was a very good skier. The film mm. kind of makes him out to be um, not particularly good at that either. But the idea was that he wasn't able to get into the Olympic squad on the strength of his downhill skiing. So he moves, just moves left because getting to the Olympics is all that matters to him. And actually, you know, he's not interested in fame and he's not interested in fortune, although as a result of um, his performance at the Olympics, both of those things came to him in later life. But he's inspired by something much closer to the original Olympic ideal, ideals. And here, is, he, here he is giving a press conference speech where he very rousingly explains that. Thank you all for coming. I know there are plenty of athletes more deserving of publicity than me. And I would like to apologise if my silly antics have cast a shadow over their achievements. I also know that I was messing around a little bit after the 70 metre jump the other day. I was very excited. But I take jumping very seriously. In fact, I love it. Which is why I... I've decided to compete in the 90 metres. What? But as people much wiser than me say, competing in the Olympics doesn't mean anything if you sell yourself short. I didn't come here as a novelty act, and I will not be going home as one. So you get the sense, it's very kind of stirring underdog sports stuff. Eddie is played as a young man by Tyne Egerton, who was the lead in Kingsman, The Secret Service. And, you know, I remember when I was growing up, seeing Eddie the Eagle on TV quite a lot. And he had a lot of mannerisms. You know, he had a kind of a jutting chin, clenchy teeth, and would be, you know, the glasses that we're wearing just now, he would kind of yeah. fiddle with those. Now, what Tyron Egerton has done is he's, I'm assuming, gone back and studied these tapes in some detail and has kind of replicated this very, kind of very meticulous impersonation of Eddie the Eagle that I think is very well meant and very well observed, but actually ends up working against the film because what you want with an underdog sports film or what I want with an underdog sports film is someone to just get behind and not this kind of, you're not sort of looking down and thinking, oh, what a sweet little fellow, you know, I hope he does well. Mm. You want to be right behind them, like in, in, in a film like Cool Runnings, which weirdly, another true story that sprung out of the 1988 Calgary Winter Olympics and is kind of cheekily referenced in the script that yeah. this, 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 this other weird underdog stories going on at the same time at the same event you know they're kind of uh capering around clownish characters but ultimately you really want them to win and it's it's not out of pity it's out of a real investment in in, in um in, in in who they are and what they stand for and i think this is something that eddie the eagle gets slightly amiss it, it it's worse the performance to me had slight elements of um the uh, ricky gervais series derek 
where it is very much kind of like holding up this pitiable character for for sympathy. And it's not like that all the way through, but when it does it, it I find it kind of slightly enervating. Mm. Where it works much better is you have Hugh Jackman playing uh, Eddie's coach, um, who is, uh, he's not a real person, he's a composite of Eddie's real life coaches and also some, um, you know, underdog sports movie cliches. Bronson Peary, he was a one-time great downhill, um, a, a great ski jumper but his career flatlined and he's disappointed his own coach. And he sees this, uh, this chance to, to, to help this guy do well in the event himself as a chance for personal redemption. Now, what Hugh Jackman brings to the movie is this kind of movie star lightness and sense of fun that this mannered performance from Tarn Egerton slightly suppresses elsewhere. There's a great scene where he's talking him through the, the experience of ski jumping as being like, I'm going to be euphemistic here, as being like spending quality time with Bo Derek. Yes. And he sort of walks him through the various emotions that one might experience while spending time with uh, quality time with Bo Derek in a very kind of vivid and pantomime way. And it's just funny and it's silly and it's light and it's it's, it's very entertaining. Um, and I kind of wish that tone it had stuck with uh, slightly better. So you have... Um, the film follows him to the training camp where he's practicing with Bronson and then um, it follows him out to the Olympics where Bronson eventually catches up with him. And, you know, it's proudly in the underdog sports tradition where, the, you know, the arc, the expected path of this this um, this this story is, is kind of spelled out from the start. Um, I think, you know, it kind of taps on some interesting stuff. There's a, an implication that Eddie didn't make it into the, the Olympic squad partly because of his class background. He's from a working class background. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Olympic sports is incredibly kind of, you know, blazers and, you know, big white smiles and all this kind of stuff. And he just doesn't fit that image. Who, who better to get than Captain Darling to, to sneer <laughs> down exactly, at him? Exactly. And they do that in a way that's interesting enough to make me wish they'd explored it a little more. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's not my favourite of Dexter Fletcher films. Um, and I think, but it does make sense that he's made it. And I think when it really works... And the moments that it really works are actually the ski jumps themselves. You know, they're incredibly well-edited, exciting. You get the point of view barreling down the jump. You get the reaction shot. You get the crowd reaction shot, the wide shot of the majesty of the landscape, all cut very, very intuitively and fluidly. And it's a lot of fun. So when it's flying, it's flying. But it just feels slightly too dependent on the standard sort of formula for underdog sports movies to really sort of grip me in, in the way that his other films have done. There's been a lot of correspondence on this uh, from a lot of LTLs and FTEs. Um, here's one from Trudy Freeman, who says, uh, I went with my two children, 21 and 19, big children, to see Eddie the Eagle last night at our local multiplex in Hatfield. Uh, we chose Eddie the Eagle as it was a compromise. Other films considered were considered too noisy or too scary. We watched it with a near-empty cinema. About 10 other people were there. I think we all enjoyed it, everyone laughing in the right places, even a ripple of applause at the end. Uh, my children's verdict on it was favourable comparing it to Cool Runnings uh, they enjoyed the credits at the end with photos of Eddie himself and over a pizza and a coat later we were still talking about it loved the show Steve and there's a lot uh, more in that vein um, Aidan Watson uh, says, my wife and I uh, were uh, at a meeting last night, finished earlier than we expected, always nice. So on a whim, we decided to visit our local multiplex and find something to watch. It just so happened we were able to see Eddie the Eagle. And I feel that this spur of the moment, zero expectation attitude with which we entered the film truly enhanced our viewing as it doesn't take itself too seriously. And whilst we both laughed more than six times, it's not the constant laugh fest, but rather a feel good, humorous, but engaging story. I was initially concerned that Egerton's uh, impression of Eddie might grate on me, 
Mordecai style, <laughs> but he toned it down really Nothing, well. Nothing. I mean, very no, few things no, great Mordecai no, 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 style, no. my word. <laughs> but he toned it down really well, so uh, that I tr- truly believed in his performance. I thoroughly enjoyed it. However, my wife absolutely loved it uh, and posted on her social media outlet, if you only see one movie this year, see Eddie the Eagle, five stars. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. I think I think that's similar to how I felt. Not not quite his wife's level, but how he felt. You know, I, I, I didn't laugh throughout, but then I didn't feel like I needed to laugh throughout i think the 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 one thing that really struck me was that you know the british can be we can be quite a cynical audience when it comes to this stuff i think americans do the the feel good thing and and they run with it and it and it's a celebration or sometimes we're we're a bit uh we're a bit downbeat about this kind of movie but i i really got swept away with it i have i have to say i didn't expect that to happen but well, maybe think, that was part of the nostalgia. I, I grew up in it. You know, I was I was eleven or twelve in uh, this stage in in my life. You know, so it's, it's a big memory for me as well. I think the intrinsic Britishness of it is really important as well because the film draws this connection between Eddie's success and the fact that it's a knockout was you know prime time for <laughs> yeah. And this is a program in which people dress up in the kind of terrible lycra costumes and fall over benches. Mm. And this was what the UK used to sit down and watch on a Friday evening. So it's kind of making sense of the fact that someone like him who is kind of earnestly incompetent can become a national hero yeah. at that particular point in history. You know, this is pre-reality TV, so there's there's not this kind of um you know conveyor belt supply of new heroes. You have to not heroes, but you know, celebrities. You have yeah. to find them in places. And so I thought by drawing that and kind of setting it in you know it, it, its kind of context in time sort of made very much a, a lot of sense. And I think, mm. you know, I found the uplift very methodically achieved, but it's genuine. You know, it is a yeah. feel-good film, and you've got a literal uplift with the you know going <laughs> down the slope and then up at the end. There, I was really, you know, I was going for it. I, actually, I should I should say to anybody that um, shared that that view with me uh, at this the uh, cinema in uh, Sheffield, um, I just want to defend myself a little bit because uh, I was shouted at in in that screening. So someone shouted at me, turn off your phone. But what I was actually doing was getting my phone out to turn it off. So I just want to say, I didn't want to get into an argument before the film started, but that's what I was doing. Um, anyway, um, there's plenty more on, on on Eddie the Eagle. Maybe we'll come back to some of that in a little while. What else have we got left to review in this last section? Robert? Yeah, we've got Battle Mountain, Graham O'Brien's, sorry, Graham Aubrey's story. Aubrey? Um, Aubrey? Battle We're all struggling. Is, it's a documentary Aubrey. about Scottish cyclist uh, Graham Aubrey, who is, uh, he was the subject of a fiction film about 10 years ago called The Flying Scotsman. Johnny right. Lee Miller played him. And it was about his fight for the world one-hour distance record. Um, and he was kind of trying to get this record and then got it and lost it and got it again. And he was also struggling with bipolar disorder at the same time. And... Um, Part of the reason that Graham O'Brien became famous in the first place is because the bike on which he got the record, which is called Old Faithful, was handmade and it was partly built out of an old washing machine or parts that he'd salvaged from an old washing machine. And he became known as the guy who broke a record on a bike made of a washing machine. Now, this documentary picks up 20 years later uh, when Graham wants to set a new record um, for um, human-powered land speed. And it's on another bike of his own design. This bike is a prone bicycle, which I'm not a kind of a cycling expert, but it basically means you're lying down face forward or rather face down with your nose about 60 centimetres from the road. Wow. And you're pumping your legs back and forth, basically like steam train pistons. It looks terrifying. The the bike itself is called the Beastie. And um, Graham is someone who's a very... um, inspirational speaker and here he is kind of talking a little bit about what's driving him uh, to break this record I mean personally speaking I want to do 100 miles an hour I want to be the first man to do 100 miles an hour in this thing I'm thinking I want you know I want to do what I aim 
You know, they reckon if you aim to the stars, you get to the moon. I want to aim for the bloody stars and actually get to the stars. Because I'm thinking, if it's humanly, scientifically possible to do 100 miles an hour. So I'm thinking, if it's humanly possible, scientifically, then let's be doing it. That's where your knee goes. So that's going like that. Personally, I'm choosing to lie forwards on it as a prone bite because the shoulders are the widest part bit. If you want some aerodynamic, you want the widest part near the front and then tail off for aerodynamic reasons. So the film follows this building of the bike and he uses parts from uh, an old roller skate that he's got lying around, parts of a saucepan are sawed out and stuck on in various places. While he's doing this, he reflects on uh, at length on a life that can really only be described as tumultuous. You know, he's battled depression, uh, suicide attempts, death of his brother, and a struggle with his own sexuality as well. And he is basically a, a totally fascinating and inspiring figure. And this is a documentary that very much, um, I don't want to say coasts, but it uses the fascinatingness of its subject and kind of doesn't really add anything more to it. And that was where I kind of feel that, you know, this film doesn't really bring anything more to Graham's story than maybe a very in-depth interview with him might do or, you know, a TV programme about what he's done. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff as well. He reflects on um, his own... Uh, basically, he was frozen out of um, professional competitive cycling uh, because he was getting into it at the height of the doping culture and he wasn't prepared to dope. And so they basically told him, well, look, you can't do it then. But he couldn't say why. He just had to kind of slink out into the shadows. And he talks very interestingly about the, the bittersweet feelings that he had when Lance Armstrong was finally banned because he said, well, you know, finally he feels vindicated for his ethical stance on doping, but he also feels it reminded him that he'd sort of squandered this professional career. And the, the film kind of taps into quite well this idea of, you know, when you can't do what you want to do and what you're obviously very good at, how does it manifest? And in this case, it manifests in trying to break these records. Um, so as I say, it's a documentary that kind of rides on the coattails of its subject. But I think if you're interested in cycling, that's not really a problem. You know, mm. it's, it, it, if, if the subject is of interest to you, it's worth seeing. What it doesn't have, like the best documentaries have, is that even if you have, you know, you're coming to the subject completely cold, it doesn't have that reach out and grab you by the collar factor that, you know, you really want these life story movies to have. So maybe a bit of a missed opportunity... I think it's a, it has a certain homemade feel about it that possibly a, a more experienced film. I, I believe this is the director's first feature. Right. And, you know, if someone like you know Asif Kapadia, you know this kind of documentary mm. titan who uh, did the Amy Winehouse documentary recently and Senna, you know someone who is just a genius at corralling. Um, you know old footage, mm. new interviews, and building up this incredibly coherent beautifully structured picture of someone's life you know you could have possibly had another film like that out of it you know but it, it gets the job done but mm. it doesn't really get any more than the job done. right fair enough well um we're going to get the job done now with the tv movie of the week now there's uh, there's all sorts of uh, classics on the, on the small screen over the next seven days um there's a bunch of people getting in touch trying to work out what robbie's gonna pick fergal o'farrell says uh, future shock for me a 2000 AD fan. I recommend A Prophet, brilliant French drama. Everyone has seen Alien, so Robbie will probably go for something weird, like The Man Whose Mind Exploded. Uh, Philip Kennedy says, it's got to be fantastic, Mr Fox. It's a film Kermo doesn't quite get, but I reckon Robbie's smart enough to know that it's the right choice. I'm 100% smart <laughs> enough to, to get fantastic, Mr Fox. I can promise you I love that film to pieces. Really? OK. The film I'm going to choose, though, is I Am Love, which is... Um, 
film made by an Italian director called Luca Guadagnino, who did um, a bigger splash that was out a few months ago with Tilda Swinton and uh, Dakota Johnson and Matthias Schoenartz and Ray Fiennes, just at kind of God-level peak tragic comedy Ray Fiennes in that movie. Um, it's a very glamorous Italian drama about Swinton's character marries into this uh, very well-off uh, textile family and falls in love with her son's best friend, who is a chef who is trying to start up a restaurant. And it's just, it's a great food film. If you like seeing the experience of eating and the kind of sensual pleasure of food represented well on screen, you I mean, you will never look at a prawn cocktail mm. in the same way again after seeing this movie. Choose your snacks very carefully. Absolutely. In the ad break proceeding. So that's uh, I Am Love. I think it's on tonight. Is it on tonight? Yep. What time? Do we know what time that is? Channel? Maybe? We'll get that information for you guys. <laughs> I will probably go for uh, a profit, I think. They're really, really... It really blew me away when I first saw it. I think you know when you see those kind of uh, those kind of dramas, especially like a prison-based drama. In order to feel really unnerved, it, it kind of helps when you don't know any of the actors <laughs> because I didn't know who anyone was. I mean, I think that film introduced to her Raheem, did it? Yes, pretty much. It's pretty it, much it, it his first as a star, and... first big uh, international film. And when you don't know anybody, you really get that extra bit of threat. You know, when you see a superstar, you think, OK, Johnny Depp's not going to get killed. He's Johnny Depp, you know. Um, but th- th- there was something about it that always kept me on edge and it's, it's really stuck with me. So I think that would be mine. It's terrific. And actually, the, the timing for uh, I Am Love, it's on at 25 past midnight tonight uh, on BBC Two. BBC Two. Perfect. So, so if you want to stay up uh, with some snacks, I would highly recommend... Well, Robbie would highly recommend I Am Love. I've not seen it, so I'll, I might check that out myself. Um, what's left, Robbie? What have we got? Let's talk about Ran, which was uh, it's <gasps> a re-release, a, a film made by Akira Kurosawa in yes. 1985, the great Japanese director behind films like Rashomon, Seven Samurai, Ikuru, uh, Yojimbo, all these classics. Ran was basically his last great epic, and there was a 10-year struggle um, behind making it. But, I mean, my word, was, was that struggle worth it? Uh, the film is loosely inspired by King Lear. Also, some other elements of Shakespeare plays are folded in there too, particularly Macbeth. One of the characters is a very Lady Macbeth-like figure. But it also ties up with Japanese legends and historical stories. And the fact that the plots behind these you know, stories that have emerged on opposite sides of the planet... Um, line up so well. It, it tells you that this film is saying some very universal things about mm. human nature. What it's saying about human nature is not very nice at all. It's a film about pride. Uh, it's about greed, spite, vengeance and madness. And the drama is, is it kind of is expressed on a scale so grand, it's difficult to describe. I mean, at times watching this film, it almost feels like watching a lightning storm tear apart a mountain. I mean, it's just this incredible visceral experience. The title actually means, Ran means chaos, but it's a very particular kind of chaos that stems from human frailty. So you have back in the medieval times, um, Hiritora, who's a Japanese lord, has decided he's coming to the end of his life and he's decided to split his kingdom, King Lear style, between his three sons and their Taro, Jiro and Saburo. And the old man believes uh, rather foolishly that this will create a lasting peace because the brothers will be able to rule uh, in in concert with each other. Um, now, Saburu recognises this is a terrible idea and he's he outrages his father by being honest with him and he is exiled. And so Taro and Jiro return to their castles and inevitably the kingdom descends into civil war. And part of the problem with this is that their wives are the daughters of... Uh, lords that Hidetora himself conquered in his period of you know building up his kingdom. So the seeds of this kingdom's destruction are sown into it from the start. You know, this isn't just the brothers uh, striking up some kind of awful rivalry that spills over into national discord. Mm. It's something that is absolutely baked into this political situation. 
Now, Hidetora is, first of all, brought low and then driven mad by seeing his kingdom fall apart. And there's a sequence where he loses his mind during this enormous battle at one castle that is just kind of... It's it's hard to even put into words. I don't want to compare everything favourably to Batman versus Superman, <laughs> but when you see the kind of airless combat in that film, mm. compare it to a, a battle scene of this scale and this kind of sense of danger. You yeah. have entire towers burning down, mm. flaming arrows whistling past the cast's heads. You know, by what looks like centimeters. I was reminded of of films like uh, you know the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where you have these huge. Uh, armies doing battle and like you say arrows flying past their head but we know it's computer generated yes yes right and there's a, at that stage perhaps they, they hadn't quite worked out how to get the heft into cg so you you didn't feel anything for any of these mass deaths you were seeing in in ran war is is messy horses fall over i hope they weren't too badly hurt but people fall over as they're charging uh we see in the first battle pretty much every death and we linger on it and you really feel that every life matters in a way that in some blockbusters modern especially with modern technology they don't and these battle scenes were enormously influential peter jackson hugely influenced them influenced by them for the lord of the rings also steven spielberg saving private ryan the boat landing sequence at the start of that film picks up on a lot of stuff from ran that you'll notice but one of the very smart things about this battle the, the film is scored by a composer called toru takemitsu who's just a wonderful wonderful composer and rather, you know, you have the kind of echoing chaos of this mm. battle. But then Kurosawa drops the sound out and just fills your ears with the score. And that basically puts you into Hiratora's mind as it's kind of his whole psyche is fracturing, watching his kingdom fall apart in front of him. And it makes it incredibly epic, but also incredibly personal. And that is something that Kurosawa does in this film with total mastery, is that the enormousness of the action is in no way undermines or cancels out the kind of minutiae, the the claustrophobic minutiae of the political kind of backstabbing that's going on. And just a father letting his sons down as well, you know, if you want to read it that way. It's a totally personal story, but spelled out over the the destiny of a nation. And I know he's not really a hero, Hidetora, but I would love to get to old age and just dress like him. Because his outfits in that film are incredible. Well, look, the costume designer actually won an Oscar at the time. You know, it wasn't um, really. I, I don't Deserve. think the film was wildly popular in Japan, but it did. It did get a bit of an international following, and, and it, it did get one costume design Oscar. I mean, it is just an all-time masterpiece, and the opportunity to see it big and in this kind of beautifully meticulous 4K digital restoration that's going around, you have to see it big. You have to be kind of settled down and mm. just kind of be bowled over by it. Yeah, it's a must-see. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, whether this is a must-see or not, I'm not sure, but fine, it's taken us a little while, but um, we've managed to find somebody who watched The Boy, uh, which is in the top ten, which uh, neither Robbie, Robbie or I have much to say on, but um, uh, Aaron Potter, thankfully, thank you, Aaron, has got something to say. He says, uh, going into The Boy, I never expected much. The premise is pretty basic and was frankly bordering on laughable. Glad I stuck around in that case, as it turned out to have a clever twist that I never saw coming, taking a concept about what you think and turning it on its head. The Boy is a film that has its main characters not be stupid. They believe, accept and acknowledge the supernatural occurrences that are happening. And this was very refreshing. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, nobody else got in touch about that, so it's good we know a little something more about The Boy. I, I Like I said, I found the trailer quite funny, and I'm sure that wasn't supposed to happen, so... <laughs> 
Uh, Robbie, we've got one review left to do, so uh, what's left? Yes, let's talk about Black Mountain Poets, which is this proudly zero-budget British comedy set in Wales um, from a young director called Jamie Adams. And it stars Dolly Wells and Alice Lowe as two criminal sisters who have this kind of racket stealing JCBs and other heavy construction vehicles from building sites. Uh, One night when they're in the middle of doing this, they're rumbled and they flee across the hills and end up stealing another car belonging to two other sisters who are professional poets on their way to this kind of poetry retreat. And for reasons that I think the film deliberately makes very vague, these the criminal sisters decide to step into the shoes of the two poets and pass themselves off as them at the retreat. And they manage to pull this off because really nobody at the retreat has an ear for poetry in the slightest and they can get away with spouting the most kind of preposterous rubbish and sell it as poetry. And here is a clip of uh, one of the other participants on this weekend retreat doing just that. Let's get this night really going. We're going to do some freestyle poetry, okay? We have amazing poets here. We have the Wilding Sisters. And uh, we're expecting Louise Cabay as well, which is another uh, amazing coup for us. First of all, I'd like to um, invite Gareth Jones up into the arena to uh, give us his juice. All right. Just checking about. Checking about, right. Um. The journey. A shurne. A glau. A fiat. A car bach and futian. My car glides. We slide. I don't break. A shurne. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. I can't speak Welsh and that's bloody good. No one's asking you, Cliff. It's quite funny. A fiat. I like that a lot. So it was shot over five days for very little money and it's largely, as you can hear from the dialogue, it's largely improvised. I think even the plot was improvised and so they kind of go up the mountain, do a bit of Tai Chi, camp, bicker with each other and try and generally fail to write poetry. Now, Alice Lowe is someone who I'm an enormous fan of. She was in um, Sightseers, the Ben Wheatley film, and uh, Dolly Wells, I don't really know her work particularly, but she has a terrific chemistry with Alice and they bounce off each other very amusingly in, in, in certain sequences. But I wonder if the kind of comedy that's in this film is actually particularly well served by it being in a film. It feels very much like it should be part of a, you know, a kind of an in-character stand-up piece. There's a really fun scene where Alice Lowe's character reads out a Tesco Express receipt in the style of a poem to show that she can bring <laughs> poetry funny. to even the most, you know, rudimentary, unpoetic material. And that's very funny, but I can imagine it working better in front of a live audience where you have this kind mm. of common sense baseline for what's acceptable and what's not, because everyone in the film is a ridiculous idiot. You don't really get that. So it's something that, you know, I wish I'd enjoyed it more. And I think it does have, it, it did pass the six laugh test. Yep. By snorts, though, I should say, not by full-throated laughs. Okay. Well, I think I enjoyed it a lot more than you. What's your film of the week, Robbie? It is, of course, Ram. Fantastic. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Robbie will be back next week with Sanjeev Bhaskar and special guest Emily Blunt. After this, it's Drive. Thanks for listening. Well, there's the show. I I thought it was better than... I can't say normal, can I? I can't say usual. No, but it wasn't better than normal. No, of it course, was, because it didn't have the, it the, the main two stars. It wasn't conspicuously worse, it w- <laughs> I think. Is it fair to say that? It was solidly above reproach.
It was, yeah, it was kind of, you know, the Emerson Joe sequence in Mad Max Fury Road where he kind of sneers out the window, mediocre, <laughs> when uh, Nicholas Holt's character failed to pull off this glorious assassination. I don't feel it deserved that. No, it fine. didn't deserve that. Yeah. It didn't deserve that. I, I think I think we did okay. I think we're sort of, maybe we're, we're a future Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you know, maybe... That's good. That sounds good to me. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're bit part players today, but who, who knows? Who knows in the future? No, you know what? I, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, it is amazing to be sat in this seat, you know, because you know, when when this was first put to me, I was I was amazed that anybody asked me to, to come and do it, you know, and I, I dropped everything to do it because I've been listening to this show since it was on Radio 1. I'm such a massive fan. I was excited to meet you. I was excited to be sat here obviously terrified at, at screwing it up completely and the fact that i have, at least haven't done that you know obviously i'm you know never gonna feel mayo's boots and you will never feel kermode's gloves because they're just they're too they're flappy too they're, they're too, too huge too you just you can't you can't feel them we'd have to both put our hands in each glove do you know what i mean which would look ridiculous um we're still wearing eddie eddie the eagle edwards's glasses um which is a, a memory that i'll take with me but no, I guess I just want to say thanks for having me, really. It's, it's just been really nice to be here and it's been great to meet you. Yeah, no, it's been um, very good fun. And the more we've got to know each other and the more I've understood about uh, bassooning. Is it bassooning? You say bassooning? Uh, bassoonery, I think. Is Bassoon- <laughs> it's not bassoonery. Is it bassoonery? No, it's not, it's not. Okay, thank God for that. Okay, yeah, it's April Fool's Day. Okay, fair enough. Um but no, the more I've got to know you, the more I've, I've understood about bassoonery, the more I've realised that Kermo can't just get away with, you know, taking the mick out of another esteemed uh, uh, crit- critical colleague with no no comeback whatsoever, you know. So I decided to, to sort of strike, go, go straight to the heart, really. And I, I was listening back to uh, some of my favourite shows. I was actually, I was driving on my way to a gig a few weeks ago when uh, uh, and listening live and Mark did a review of London Has Fallen. I remember it. Um, And I remember laughing a lot uh, at the the review. I really like it when he hates a film. (laughs) Obviously, we all love a a Commodian rant. I especially love a Commodian rant when he begins it by saying, I'm not going to get angry about it. I'm just not. And then he does. Um, But what made me laugh was just how many Commodian sound effects were in this review. I mean, I thought it was just me, but when I got home, I actually I, I, I downloaded the uh, the podcast, stuck it up in uh, uh, you know a little audio app, and just pulled out all the sound effects. And it's perhaps more than half the review are <laughs> Kermodian sound effects. I'm not joking you, and this is not. I haven't doubled anything up. I haven't put any effects of my own in there. All this happened live. On, on on Five Live, it happened. I haven't I haven't copied anything over. I've literally just taken out all of his noises and put them together. And believe me, I had to edit it down in order for okay. it to, to, in order to play it on this little section of the show. Check this out. Yeah, because hey, he's such a guy. You hear the music in the background. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, what do they make you out of? Bourbon and poor choices. Uh, this is just the beginning, okay? Um, but uh, then uh, uh, the it's just him, Gerard, to get him and the thing and to look up and get away from. His, so and just do them and just get them and and it's and 
Efforty, jeffity, efforty, jeffity, blah, 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 blah. Crashy, crashy, punchy, smashy, shooty, efforty, jeffity, efforty, jeffity, crashy, crashy. And then Gerard going, ah, doing the Gerard part of the thing. So the police are efforty, jeffities? No, no, well, they are because they've, but they're not police because he was doing a whole sequence which was just, I love it. Go and get them. Yes, sir. Go and get them. It's just such utter poo. There you go. That's the, the amazing thing about that review is it's still a good review of London. It's Fallen. boiled the film down to its haiku-like <laughs> essence. It's extraordinary. It's Even poetic. without, you know, ordinary nouns and verbs, that's that's what London Has Fallen is all about. I'm telling you, when I when I made that little edit, I, I started listening to it like a song. <laughs> so fair, fair play, the, 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 the man is an entertainer in, in more ways than one. Um, we sh- I guess now, actually, it's time for a bit of a shift in pace because I think we should do DVD of the Week. <sighs> I would have thought they'd give me the hip-hop version and then there we go. Weak, limp, lifeless. Is your Betamax collection looking dull and tired? Well, your prayers have been answered. Your collection will be stronger full of life and replenished with just one wash of DVD of the week. What will Robbie choose? What's your pick? Adrian Shell says, most of the options look like the straight to DVD of the week list. Grandma will be the choice though. Oh, Grandma the movie, yeah, fair enough. Fergal O'Farrell says, I think I remember Robbie liking Hard to Be a God, which I didn't have the patience for, frankly. That said, this week I would choose The Forbidden Room. Keith Fraser says, definitely Sunset Song. A film I really wanted to see in the cinema. My grandparents on my dad's side grew up not too far away from where it's set, but wasn't able to. Keith Coslett, on the other hand, says, I would go for Leaving Las Vegas, and I've added Grandma to my rental list. Mark Gorman says, I think I'd like to experience Sunset Song, although the finer cinematography nuances may be lost on the small screen. I'm betting Robbie will leave. Uh, will go for Leaving Las Vegas. And Ian Miles says, Chuck Norris, top of the pile. He would certainly compliment my chipboard shelving. However, Robbie will go for Sunset Song, a rare film from Terence Davis. What this week's host will go for is anyone's guess, because nobody knows Ben Baby Smith, right? Uh, Leaving Las Vegas for my shelving. Cage's best performance by far, and so well partnered, not supported, by Elizabeth Shue. Robbie, what's your DVD of the week? Well... I will say that The Forbidden Room I didn't see in cinemas, and I'm desperate to see that, so I will personally be going out to to pick up The Forbidden Room, the new film from Guy Madden. But I am going to fly in the face of expectations and go for a film called Yakuza Apocalypse, Mm. which is a new movie from Takashi Miike, this wildly productive Japanese auteur who maybe about 10 years ago was making about three or four films a year. Uh, his pace has slowed down slightly now. But yeah, Sorry, say that again? He was ten... making about three or four films a year. Three or back, four back films a year? Novels. Yeah, very, very productive. Some of them were very bad. Okay. A lot of them were very good. And um, titles like 13 Assassins and Harakiri, Death of a Samurai. Just wonderful kind of... These, these are his more recent works have tended to be quite classical period dramas, quite restrained. Yakuza Apocalypse takes them back to the craziness of that hyperproductive period. If you saw uh, The Happiness of the Katakuris, which is this kind of comedy musical about a hotel where people keep dying, mm. or Gozu, which is this David Lynchian weird kind of Yakuza story uh, set in this really rundown village, 
This is very much like that. It begins as a kind of a satire of the financial downturn with these vampiric gangsters literally sucking a community dry. And then it just jumps completely off the deep end. There's this man in a giant frog costume comes onto the scene who's described as the world's toughest terrorist. He takes this gang of <laughs> ne'er-do-wells to clash against local Yakuza. This vampire fights back. There are giant monster battles. There's a lot of craziness. There is this satirical undercurrent. There's wonderful martial arts sequences. Um, if this is at all ringing anyone's bells, you know, do check this film out. It's taking Takashi Miike back to what he was doing 10 years ago, uh, which I really couldn't get enough of then, and I still can't get enough of now. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go and buy that. I mean, uh, that sounds incredible. I, I, I would say, I mean, out of the ones I've seen, my DVD of the week would be Leaving Las Vegas, but only because it was the last time I remember watching Nicolas Cage and not his hair. Right. Mm. Everyone has that moment. I don't yeah. know what mine was. It's like a sort of shark jumping moment, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I wonder what yours was. Well, we'll work it out. And if you remember, um, I'm sure you can tell everybody next week when we'll have uh, Sanjeev Baskar uh, accompanying Robbie. For more film chat, make sure you tune in next week and also, you know, in, enjoy the podcast, of course, if you miss it. I don't think I've ever listened live. You ever listen live? I have a few times. In the car. Yeah. In the car. Yeah I've, yeah, I've caught bits live, you know, but I've never like... I've sat down. Where where'd you get two hours from to just sit there? Well, I mean, if you work at home, if you're a film critic, you have two hours anytime you like, so it's fine. Oh, yeah, that's very true. That is true. I suppose I, I, I do have the opportunity, but I just I find it weird. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel right with the news and sport. I, I, I like to just sort of ride it out. I want to I want to be doing chores. I want to be doing stuff. Yeah, right. It's intimate. Yeah. If I was listening to it live, I'm, I'm sure I'd be feeling guilty about something that I should be doing that I'm clearly procrastinating on. And you miss out on all the kind of triple A plus chat, like what is happening. Like what's no, happening right I now. It's all a bit too meta now because we're talking, we're chatting about the chat. Yep. We'll cut this, we'll cut this stuff out. Good. It'll just be really neat and tidy at the end and uh, everybody will want to come back next week. So there we go. There we go. Thanks, Robbie. It's been a pleasure, mate. See you. Ta-da. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.